So welcome to episode 65 of The Game Pit. My name's Ronan and joining me this time is not Sean. He's very busy on holidays and living the high life. Instead, I have got board game podcasting glitterati with me and I'm very honoured to welcome Mr. Mark Johnson to The Game Pit. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm sure I do not live up to that billing. Well, we're going to judge you over the next hour and a half. We'll see. that's, That's fair. (laughs) <laughs> so mark is from board games to go and war games to go how long have you been podcasting mark just to make me sound uh, bad on this a long time right i i started podcasting in 2005 so that was board games to go and then i think i started the war games one in about 2012 and it's not like i've been putting out shows very consistently but they have been trickling along all those years and i've been listening probably i guess 2009 so i'll get a bit of a newcomer to you but <laughs> right Mark and I have been sharing some conversations over Twitter and one of the themes that has come through is that when we talk about short games there's been both agreement and disagreement so we thought it might be interesting for this episode to get together and discuss some shorter games and then actually fire through quite a number of them I think we're going to try and cover 18 games during the episode but just briefly because they'll be going to probably both of us have talked about somewhere else okay Perfect. Great. Just to start off, in terms of short games, Mark, what do you look for in a shorter game as opposed to something longer? Well, this is where I said that your notes intimidated me because I read these things and I thought, I don't know what the answer to those questions are. Because I started thinking about what short games I like, and I do like a lot of short games. Now, short, I think, in the context that we're talking about here, it isn't, you know, isn't love letter. It isn't 15-minute things. It's it's like under an hour. Isn't that right? That's what yeah, we're aiming for? I think for? under an hour comes in that. See, for me, a decent length game is three hours plus. So anything under oh. an hour is practically a filler. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Yes. We come from different schools of thought here. We right. So I like do. those. <laughs> I like those short games, those one-hour games. And I think I always have. And they've kind of, I don't know, been going on strong for last decade or so. Actually, I'm going to cheat a little bit. I have over here a description. You're familiar with the term super filler? Absolutely. Well, in case people aren't, I'm going to read from the guy, your countryman, who came up with that term, Mike Siggins. I didn't realize this. He wrote this 10 years ago, actually. I guess there was a little misunderstanding at the beginning. Someone thought super filler sounds like a filler, but even more so. So even shorter, even faster. But no, that's not what he meant. He meant a filler, but even more is even bigger but still on the short side. He says, the super filler is really a subtype of game that I used to call the middleweight. It's more than a 20 or 30 minute starter, but it does not amount to a main course in weight or play length. The game is straight in, has plenty of decisions, a fair amount of depth, but importantly is very quick to play, almost always under an hour, and leaving you feeling as if you've played for longer. In many ways, it's an important species of the German game because it can avoid many of the traps. Not too light, not too random, not too boring and appeals to many types of player. And those that don't like it can see that it won't last too long. So that's a great description of what I like about short games, especially the phrase in the middle. It says, almost always under an hour, and leaves you feeling as if you played for longer. So that's the cool thing I like about these games, is the best ones anyway, is when they sort of uh, punch above their weight class, to use another expression, is when they just have a lot of oomph, but in a, sh- in a small package, either because of my short attention span or because I actually want to get in four or five games on a game night, just not just one big one. Yeah, and I'd say one of the other advantages of them, and I, I agree with Mike's description there, is that you have the ability to play the game several times and explore it more than those longer games, and you can try different strategies. And that's one of the things I like to see is you have some options to go down different paths, and 
the other one thing I'll put in there is I always look for interaction in a shorter game. I don't mind so much a solitary game, maybe I'm changing here, when it's a bit longer, when the decisions I'm making have time to have repercussions at the end of them. But when I'm just doing a solitaire, I'm not interacting with anyone else and it's short and quick and it's over, I feel like I could have read a book or watched a movie. What, what was the point of people being there? Oh, I see. That's kind of interesting. Then that I know I don't want to get sidetracked on longer games. That may be the way a lot of uh, long games that people like have that character, and that's probably why I don't like them as much. I gather that in those things, you're getting to build something. You're building your strategic engine or your economy or whatever. But in a super filler, there's just not that much there, right? And uh, yeah, playing with the people around the table is a huge part of it. Should be, I think. I hope so. I hope that will come through. Just to describe what we've done, we've split the groups of games into three each in three sort of categories. <laughs> well, two categories and one not category. <laughs> so, yeah, one catch-all at the end. Yeah, absolutely. To catch the ones we wanted to talk about but didn't fit with the other two. So the first ones we're going to talk about have been nominated at least for the Spielders Yaris in recent years. The second set is going to be dice games. And the third set are going to be all the randoms that we couldn't really find a care and structure for. So the first six games we'll talk about have been nominated for the Spieldus Yaris. And just as a quick bit of introduction, Mark, what does the Spieldus Yaris mean to you? I guess both historically and nowadays, uh, I think maybe perhaps the influence or the role it plays in the community may have changed. I think the Spieldus Yaris is hugely important and I absolutely love it. I love it because they tend to pick games I like. I already told you I skew towards the lighter stuff. And so it never bothered me that they didn't pick the most gamery games out there. But even, I think, if that wasn't uh, well aligned with my personal taste, I think I, at least I hope, I would love what I think it did for the hobby. The fact that we've got the hobby we've got today is in large part due to the good management of the German game industry, especially through this Spiel des Jahres Award. Maybe I'm overstating that. I'm not exactly sure. I think it's been fantastic how they've done it and everything that I've learned about how the jury works. We've gotten a little bit more insight into it now that, you know, Board Game Geek has had more contact with some of the uh, jurors and they're part of some of their events and you get to hear a little bit more how that process works and my respect for it only grows, actually. It used to float down from the mountain on on Pete's paper, didn't it, from above? Yeah, it did, especially in those, you know, really early days. I mean, Never mind that I started the podcast in 2005. You know, I was reading Mike Siggins back in like 1996 and everything. And he's writing about events that happened in 1992. And then it was, oh my gosh, it was really opaque and esoteric what was going on. It was almost, well, I guess it sort of was pre-internet back then. And so we didn't really know what the deal was behind it. But now we know more. And we've always heard that it has a huge effect on sales. And there's a glass half empty interpretation of that that's very crass and commercial. But I think it, you know, these publishers need to be able to stay in business. And uh, I think the Spiel des Jahres has, has been a big part of why that's worked so well coming out of that particular country. And then is sort of in the last decade or so leaked over into other parts of the world. So I think it's fantastic. I think also, if nothing else, it generates that sort of conversation and that buzz and that excitement and topic points. And, and it does draw interest and anything that draws interest in the industry is going to be positive. And sometimes it creates controversy, as we'll see with some of our nominations. And that's good as well, because anything that yeah. allows people to talk or if you say this game is great, 
if someone comes in and looks at it and plays it, it's at least going to get their attention in the hobby. And it reaches beyond the spectrum of, of us and BGG users and what have Right. I mean, my buddy Dave hosts an Oscar party every year. And the Oscars are certainly another award that gets a lot of grumbling. But also, like just like you say, a lot of interest and a lot of people talking, even if it's just to second guess what the awards are. So that's a fun spectator sport as well. We'll pass some judgment down now on their selections for this year. So for the main prize code names what were your thoughts on that one? Oh, i absolutely love code names you know not only was it my favorite game and my prediction and, and personal pick for the year it was also the game when it came out it just like and it came out early right early in the year and it just blew me away and i've been following the award long enough to know that sometimes there's a well not too often in fact is there a game that just is the anointed king you know that that is the game that's going to win that's what it felt like and sometimes there's upsets and everything but there's other years when there's three games nominated and you think like oh yeah they're all kind of good whatever you know but then once in a while there's a settlers of catan or a carcassonne or a dominion and you think like wow that is really something special and i Codenames was that kind of game for me this year. So I absolutely love that pick. I absolutely love it as well. I love the game. And it's probably the game in the last few years that's got the biggest crossover potential. And I'm talking to people who aren't in gaming and they know what Codenames is. Codename Pictures, have you got any interest in it? Sure. I got interest in that too. Uh, I'm just starting to see a few uh, images of that show up on the web. I definitely want to give that a shot. And, you know, also these days, any Spiel des Jahres ends up being like a brand in a franchise. That's probably maybe my least favorite part of what happens with the award, but I know that's just how it works. So you know, if it wasn't Codename Pictures, it was going to be Codename Codename something. Codenames Verful. <laughs> Codenames yeah, the Codenames, TV series. Codenames the Dice Game. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what it was going to be. <laughs> okay. And yeah. as Isle of Sky for the Kenner Spiel. Well... Not as wild about this one. Uh, the Kenner Spiels are kind of weird for me because they're kind of neither fish nor fowl. They're, you know, a little bigger, a little heavier, but as any real gamer would say, they're not big and they're not heavy, right? They're, they're still sort of this kind of a middleweight game, just a little bit more. So they're not heavy enough for the real gamers. They're heavier than some family strategy stuff like I prefer. And so of all the nominees this year... I don't know. I wasn't really blown away with I Love Sky. I've played it a few times, and my opinion has seesawed a little bit. So it was actually pretty negative in the beginning, and then it got better as I played it more. So it's possible, you know, it's going to grow on me some more. I'm not super wild. No, it's, I think it's a pretty good game. In fact, my opinion is nosedived on it a little. I got it, and I was very excited. First four or five plays, you know, I was, yeah, let's get it out, let's get it out. And then within a couple of plays, my interest had gone. But I think I'm finding that seven or eight plays is a bit of a death knell for many games because when I was preparing for the episode, I'd get to go, oh, I traded that after seven plays. Oh, I traded that after eight plays. <laughs> so I think any more than that is a definite hit. Isla Sky, mm. and I was sure Pandemic Legacy was going to win. I was too. It was my pick as well. Although my own personal experience with it has been, I respect it more than I love it, you know. But I thought even that was enough. I thought it was a kind of a landmark achievement in game design and that would maybe get uh, recognized but i guess not i guess not indeed okay so picking over this year's let's go into a few years ago so we've structured the six games into we're both going to give you a fail in an attempt as a short game a near miss and an absolute hit and mark's going to lead us off with one which didn't work for him yeah and for him is i think the important part here i because i thought we're going to get into you know, talking about these things, and I don't think I have a real consistent uh, opinion. I mean, some some game I really like is going to like say, well, why didn't you like Kingdom Builder? Because that's my first one here. Kingdom Builder, uh, designed by Donald X. Vaccarino, published by Queen Games. What year was it? 2011. I hope 
as you know, spill this yard is winter, probably everyone's familiar with it with the hexagonal board that can be built in different ways and the and the cards and the different sort of scoring things. And and it's one of those games that's this happens to me a lot with I think these shorter games. You know, it's not just about assembling all of the component parts of a game. Somehow lightning needs to strike, you know, and bring the creature to life somehow. And for some games that happens for me and other games it doesn't. And Kingdom Builder feels like it has all the parts and it's got light gameplay and it's got you know, all those variations built into the game itself, never mind the actual expansions. But somehow it just lies there for me and is not very interesting. I mean, it's interactive in the sense that you're elbowing each other out of the way constantly, but it, it I don't know, it just doesn't do much for me. And I've got it down as a hit <laughs> after our agreement on this year, it's straight into the disagreement. I think of Kingdom Builder more as a puzzle, really. And the puzzle is to exploit the powers which are available in that particular setup and then roll with the blows of the cards because I think for a shorter game to last more than that dreaded 7 or 8 mark it has to be quite variable in plays so as well as the powers giving you that the, the card draw gives you that yeah you can get hosed if you draw four grasslands in a row it's a real really bad start and it's been quite challenging to get out from there but with these shorter games, if I get absolutely hosed by luck, it doesn't happen too often. I'm not that worried about it. I think the biggest thing against it for me is that it's so dry. Because every time I play it, I end up kind of reluctant at the beginning and haven't enjoyed myself by the end of it. But I've never bought it and I've never choose it. I'd never say, oh yeah, I want to play Kingdom Builder. Yet, like I say, I would call it a hit because I'll say... I've played it a dozen times or so, and every single game has been enjoyable. So uh, you said there about the lightning strike and the bringing the creature to life. As I was going through, I was trying to think of some way of putting that, you know, the magic ingredient or the spark. I think that's what we're going to have to call it, the lightning strike for the, for the rest of the episode. It has got it for me, but it's almost a slow burn. Yeah, and I, you know, I, haven't, I don't own it. I've played it several times with friends. One of my friends just loves it, but I can imagine... All these Spiel des Jahres winners, I would think, I'm going to cheat and look at my list here, I would think that they would play well with family, and I tell you, Kingdom Builder, I wouldn't even begin to play with family. I think it would just be dead on the table. Yeah, I have to agree with you there, because definitely my kids, I need some sort of theme. If I try and get anything that abstract to them, they just their eyes glaze over and they wander off and they're like, well, I don't I really, don't really care that. Yeah. So, okay. Moving on to my fail from the Spiljaris nominees is Machikoro from 2012, Masao Signama. I disagree. <laughs> IDW. Uh, we covered this in episode 43, so everyone knows I don't like it, so it'll be quick. You're supposed to be a corporation developing a town. What happens is your turn you roll 1d6 you start with a couple of buildings which will give you money if you roll a one on anyone's turn you get some money or a two or three on your own turn you'll get some money and then you can purchase other buildings with the money you've generated which are going to have various effects and ways for you to make money or take money so blue cards will work on anyone's turn green ones just on your turn there are red cards that let you steal from others and there are purple cards which have some special powers which allow you to trade buildings or do various things there are four goal buildings that you're looking to build the first person to build all four is the winner they also give you powers and you build them like the ability to re-roll the ability to roll 2d6 so you start with basic buildings and there are more advanced buildings which activate if you roll an 8 or 9 or 10 or what have you you can try to build some synergies especially between the smaller and the bigger cards in the game and I guess that's what you're trying to do unfortunately for me I feel like there's a complete lack of agency in the game I can try and stack my chips on three and if no one roll threes and they all roll fours or fives then I'm not going to win the game 
the rich get richer which I find a bit irritating. You can get kind of stuck behind the curve and you're never really going to catch up unless you get completely lucky, which brings me to lack of agency. And before I go on being a negative Nelly, I'm going to let Mark comment. Well, you know, those were some valid criticism. Plus, you just intimidated me again. I'm going to <laughs> game in my game descriptions here. That was a heck, heck of a summary of Machikoro. But I think those criticisms are valid and yet I like it anyway because it's just... It's pleasant for me. Now, part of it's being pleasant is dependent on a couple things. One is don't play with all the expansions. I've done that a time or two, and that's a mistake. By the time I got it, people had already figured out that the, the way you sort of lay out the tableau of cards to be purchased, they figured out a better way to do that by the time they did the first expansion than, than what was listed in the base game. And so it adds a little more variability. So I've always played it that way. I guess it's called like the Harbor variant, even though maybe it's probably the main way the game is played now. And so it's just kind of fun. I've heard someone compare it to Settlers of Catan and then tear down that comparison saying, but there's no significant player interaction. There's no trading like in Settlers. And that's a fair point. But what there is like in Settlers is, oh, I just, you know, I kind of build my stuff and people roll dice and I get more stuff. And maybe you get more more stuff faster than I do. So you end up winning the game. But I built a little city over here. And isn't that kind of cool? No. Um, when I've played it with family members, it's had that feeling. And that's been, like I said, a, a good time. You know, I, I've really come around in the last you know, many years now to appreciate art production in games. And I think Machi Koro, a significant part of its appeal, comes from the really adorable art production of the game. It just adds to the enjoyment. I can remember yeah. back in 2012 when all we saw was artwork with the Japanese writer, which I didn't understand, and it was coming out and be available at Essen, and I was really excited about it because, possibly because of the artwork, because of the idea of building up, and I think my expectations also ruined it for me because I went in wanting and expecting more, and for my taste, getting very little. What kills it for me is the lack of decisions and the fact you have to pay attention to other people's turns, but you're not actually deciding anything. You're just seeing what they roll and going, well, that's good for me or that's bad for me. And then on my turn, rolling and that's good for me or that's bad for me. Yeah, that's all fair and accurate. I just find it fun anyway, or pleasant as I think the word I used, and that's how it feels. Yeah, pleasant's got no how I'm here in the game pit. <laughs> unpleasant <laughs> is much more welcome. <laughs> so you're going to talk about a game in which you can be unpleasant to each other. This is Colt Express from 2014, designed by Christopher Rimbo. I don't know how to pronounce that name. Published by, who's the first publisher? Ludonaut, maybe? It's got a bunch of publishers these <laughs> days, of course. Everyone knows this game when you see it, because it has the 3D train. You build it up out of these thick, chunky cardboard bits, and it makes this Old West train uh, going across the tabletop. And you have some stand-up figures for your players and some other stuff. And, and there's, it is a train robbery sort of game. And the game is played where everyone has a character, basically, and they have a deck of cards. And there's a, it's a simultaneous action selection sort of thing, which not everyone likes. Well, I guess it's not entirely simultaneous, isn't it? You, you pick things, but then they go into a stack and they resolve according to a stack. And that's both the strength and the weakness of the game. It, the strength is that, you know, that's quick and it feels kind of thematic in terms of crazy stuff, action movie sort of stuff happening as you resolve the events of the cards. But the disadvantage is that it is really hard to plan and have things, you know, you have to enjoy the idea, whether it's in Robo Rally or a game like this, Cult Express, that, you know, weird stuff is going to happen, not the way you planned it. Ha ha ha. You know, I just got, uh, my whole turn was destroyed because of some 
thing that you did that I didn't anticipate. Some people like that and some people don't. Certain, I don't know if anyone would like it if this was a three-hour game, but it's a short game. And so it's, it's pretty pleasant. But, you know, I mentioned art direction before, and I think that's a huge part of the appeal here, too, is just the toy factor of this thing is really fun. And, you know, when I play, I was completely tickled by the fact that not only do you have the 3D train, and the you know cowboys, robbers, whatever they are, all on the train is you have some landscape sort of stuff like deserts and uh, you know mountain tops and things like that. It would be going by like it was a Roadrunner cartoon or something in the old west. And you know it's too much trouble to actually move the train across the table. You'd run out of table space, so we move the landmarks backwards, right? So at, during turns, stuff goes by. And so either you think that's silly and pointless, or you think that's silly and fun. And in my case, I think it's silly and fun. But the reason it's a near miss is because that chaos and un- unplanability of it is always going to limit my enjoyment as, of it as a game. It's just something that's kind of fun to do once in a while, but I, I just can't say that I love it. So after two disagreements, we're singing from the same hymn sheet here. Okay, good. I was nodding my head to almost everything you said, so I don't want to repeat you too much. Just that your, your turn can be ruined, and I just think slightly too often. And usually if you're playing a five or six player game, one or two players are not really included in the round because they're playing pointless card after pointless card. And the fact it's, it is majority of a hit is because it's quick and it's fun and very thematic. And I love the idea of this scenery getting pushed backwards and adding to it, maybe making some choo-choo noises and some bang-bangs. I'm all for that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but exactly, too chaotic. And that's and just by a smidge. So I have to play it if anyone else ever got it out but another one i had for half a dozen players or so and traded away and said that's great i've seen it it's you know a little bit too fiddly and also i think for the weight of it i would love to have played it with the kids but there were slightly too many decisions for them and they couldn't really anticipate what everyone else was going to do so they felt just lost as if i've got no control of what i'm doing so kind of like a gamer's super filler i guess yep What's your near miss? Uh, my near miss, yeah, is Augustus. 2013, designed by Paolo Mori and designed by Hurricane. It is themed around Rome and the Roman Empire and players trying to control provinces or influence senators. And they're going to be doing that by placing legions on symbols. You have three objectives each to start with. And these objectives have got a row of symbols down the left-hand side. And it, you have got seven legion tokens one player draws a token out of a bag and it's going to have one of those symbols on there. So it could be swords or a chariot or a shield or what have you. And if it matches any of the symbols on your objectives, you put a legionnaire on top of it. Great. Go on to draw the next one. It's bingo. Game of bingo, as everyone calls it. If all the symbols manage to get covered, then great. You've achieved that goal. And that goal is going to score you some points. It's going to allow you possibly some special powers. It's going to allow you to get more legions. It's possible that it makes symbols more flexible for you. You can attack other players. It's got various effects. There's also a wild symbol in the bag, which takes away some of the luck of the draw. When that gets drawn, everyone can choose what they want from it. And then all the tiles go back in the bag and they hand on to the next person and you start redrawing again. The thing with that is the symbols have different levels of rarity. So the cross swords, there's more of them in the bag than there are of the Legion standards, for example. In terms of completing the objectives, once someone's completed seven, the game is over. But there are bonuses you can chase these. So the promises come in different colours. Someone completes three of the same colour, they're going to get a bonus bonus points by having one of each you can get bonus points there are bonuses for collecting certain symbols on the cards gold and wheat and also the last thing for scoring is there's a push your luck element when you complete two objectives you've got the ability to take a bonus card but you can only take it exactly when you complete two objectives if you don't take that and you pass 
When you complete three, you can take one or four or five or six. And that's great. But if you start chasing the five or six one and someone else beats you to it and takes the bonus, you can't take the ones that are left behind. So there's a little bit of fun there and a little bit of chasing after a bonus and interaction. Bingo is fun, Mark. When I go over to see my mother in the west of Ireland, we always go down the social club and play a bit of bingo. <laughs> and game of bingo is quite fun as well in Augustus. I uh, had a similar reaction to you as well. So we're syncing up on these middle ones that uh, I didn't know much about it before I got nominated for Spiel des Jahres. And then I think it was some people even thought it was a front runner that year and uh, or a dark horse, one of those things. And I ended up playing it and thought, yeah, this is pretty fun. But then, you know, I didn't actually get the award. Am I right? Or did it win? Is that why we're talking about it? I've lost my place. <laughs> it didn't hey, win. Wait a minute. Although you're if you're asking me what won. It didn't win. Aren't you changing the rules up on me here? All right. Uh, all of mine are nominations. Oh, nominations. You're not even following your own rules, yeah. but okay. Anyway, so um, <laughs> you threw me there for a second. Okay. So, but then when it didn't win, people weren't as clamoring to play it as, as they were when they thought it was about to win. And, and no one seemed to miss it that much. And then I went to another game night like a year later and someone pulled it out and I had to remember how to play. And I played it again and I thought, yeah, this is... This is pretty fun, you know, this is pretty good, but it just had that feeling it was it was pretty good. I don't know, it just didn't jump off the page well enough. Didn't have that spark, that lightning bolt. The monster didn't breathe. <laughs> Indeed. One of the things that there's complexity there, without much reward, as in, I couldn't play it with the family, again, because it was slightly too complex, and too much going on, they were like, what? Why am, I, why am I doing this? Why am I doing that? And yet with gamers, you're having to pay attention all the time. Because in a game where you take turns, you can kind of concentrate for your bit and then keep an eye on what's going on. But in Augustus, you are concentrating for 45 minutes or 60 minutes. And it's input to output yeah. on this one. And I felt like the output wasn't quite there for me to say it's great. The game that beat it is the one you're going to be calling a hit in a minute. So apparently you're right on that one. No, Although no, no, we no. all know you're I wrong. <laughs> very clearly. Can I, can I talk about that one now? But Augustus, just a, a, a nearest for me. I got a load of plays out of it. It was fun. But it, the spark. Yeah. And if there. someone brought it to the table at my next game, I would be happy to play it. You know, but, you know it's just okay for me. Okay, but a game that is not just okay, a game that is far and away just a fantastic game, an excellent pick, I'm sure you will agree, <laughs> is Hanabi. Okay, so kind of a double year here. So, I mean, 2013 is, I suppose, when it won the award. It's listed in the database as 2010. That's because when that's when designer Antoine Bowser, you're familiar with this guy? He designed some pretty good games, you know. Yeah, I heard of him. That's right. I heard of okay, him, Okay, and this yeah. is one of them. So he designed Hanabi, um, part of some small publisher thing that he did back in 2010, but the rest of us got to see it in 2013. It, it came out as a double yeah, game, didn't it? Yeah, Hanabi and Ikebana or something like that. And I've never seen that version. Yeah. And I don't think it has any substantial differences, but it got a, a nicer version when Abakish Spieler brought it out in 2013. Other than Dominion, which is a card game of a whole different type, this was really the first card game in the sense of a small box to win the Spiel des Jahres, something that some of us thought Bonanza should have done a long time ago. And so when it, when it won, I, there was a lot of excitement at that level too. I mean, I think that's great that the award can recognize small games too. You know, I hope there's more of those in the future. So Hanabi is the game that probably is known as the one where you hold your cards backwards. Or if you're playing with tiles, you, you set the tiles up backwards so that everyone else gets to see your hand and you do not. It's a co-op game. That's also pretty notable. I don't, was it the first co-op game to win Spiel des Jahres? I'm not sure. In any case, 
Um, it is a co-op game. Uh, you can play with two to five players. I play it regularly, actually, with my daughter. It's our go-to game. She's a college-aged kid now, and the two of us just play it two-player, but I also like to play it with the, the full set of players, three, four, or five. It's themed, not that it matters too much. There's been lots of reskins and rethemed around um, fireworks. I think that's maybe what Hanabi means in Japanese. It's a way of getting five different suits, and you are playing a collective game of kind of like solitaire, where you're trying to discard cards face up to the table in a tableau, and they need to go in ascending order. So in the five different colors, they need to go one, two, three, four, five in red, one, two, three, four, five in yellow, and so on. But you don't have to build all the reds before you build all the yellows. They just have to go in that ascending order in their respective piles. Since everyone's holding their cards backwards, how do you know what to play? Well, on your turn, you're either going to play a card, which you wouldn't do unless you had some information, information that you would have gotten because on a previous turn, someone did the other thing they can do, which is give you a hint. And there's a specific format of, of hints that you can give. You look at someone's hand and you tell them all of a number or all of a color of cards that they have in their hand. You can actually point and touch to them and say, this one, this one, and this one are red, or this is a four, but it has to be the only four when you say that. The last thing you can do, of course, is discard a card. The reason you do that is because you have a limited number of those hints or clues that you can give out, and those get used up, sometimes alarmingly quickly. And it's only by discarding cards that you get clues back. There are extra cards in each rank, so that there are, you know, safe discards, and uh, then at some t point there's even cards that have to be discarded because they can't, there's no legal play. You can't put a, a one on top of another one, and you certainly can't put a one on top of a two. You know, those cards have to go away and get discarded to generate more clues, plus cycle through your hand. So what I love about this game so very much is that it's just unique. I haven't played any, I've played quite a number of card games, and maybe there are some that I don't know about, but I have never played a game where you hold your hand backwards and everyone else gets to see your hand and you don't. Just the innovation of that is very fun. I tend to like co-ops. This is not only a fun co-op, it's a co-op that almost by design or just inherent in its, the way it works is there is no alpha player, I think even possible, in Hanabi, because no one sees all the information. You know, if you're playing any other sort of co-op, someone who knows the game best can say, well, you should do this on your turn, and you should do this on your turn, and I'll do this. And that may or may not be good for some people. It tends to be bad for most people. But in Hanabi, that's impossible. You know, if I'm the, trying to be that alpha player, I don't see my hand. And uh, it's not just one of three or four different hands. It's, it's an integral part of the whole way we play the game together. And so none of us can do that. And even if, you know, you're not sure about the game, you say, well, what should I do? I'm thinking, I can't tell you. You can't tell me. We all have to play on our own. Now, you and I had a little discussion on Twitter about, I think you, it made it sound like the games you've played have been in deathly silence. And that's... Deathly concentrating silence. Wow. Yeah. And I can imagine, you know, <laughs> some people might like to play that way or some people might not like to play that way. But in my case, we've never played that way. I, in fact, when you said that, I thought, am I playing this game wrong? I mean, if I'm having a good time, at, at some measure, I don't care if I'm playing it wrong. But you did make me go back and look at the rules. There is something in there about, you know, communication that is not allowed, the type of things you cannot say. But it doesn't mean you can't talk. Um, so we do a lot of talking. And we do a lot of, it's almost like smack talk, except it's smack talk in a co-op game, which sounds like an oxymoron, but it's very fun. It's like, you know, I told you that clue. You know what you're supposed to do. And sometimes someone thinks, no, I don't know what, you're what I'm supposed to do because that clue is ambiguous to me. And, but we do a lot of that kind of thing. I, I think this is the sort of game that 
every group might play a little bit differently. I've, I've been lucky enough oh, to play with sure, a few different for groups. Sure, yeah. And it's interesting to watch just the way different groups approach it and the a group think about it. You know, some groups say like, you know, if I tell you a clue about a card, that means play the card. Even if you don't know, it's like, I wouldn't have told you about it if I didn't want you to play it. Now, some might call that cheating. That's a way of layering in extra information. And I think that's a possibly fair criticism, but I don't care. It's just fun. I've played with some groups that have completely rigid conventions, like we're playing Duplicate Bridge or something like that, and the way they give clues, which is a way of layering even more information in, as well as restricting what clues you can give because of the way they do it. You can read about that stuff if you want to. Some people don't want to because it kind of spoils the experience for them. Oh, no codes. So I've played it. No codes. Uh, well, That's number one rule. <laughs> no, it, it, it's not a cheat. It's not like, you know, the way I tap it or with fingers or anything like that. But it's just like, well, I don't want to give it away. But, I mean, you, could, you, you can look up that stuff if you want. That was an interesting way to play too. But, like, when I play with my daughter, I mean, I tell you, we're just going back and forth saying, what do you want me to do? I can't believe you gave me that clue. And she says, like, I don't know. You better pick something, you know. So, so we just have so much fun with this game. I can't understand why you don't like it. But I I don't not like it. And this is something we talked about on Twitter. We talked about just before we started recording. It's a good game. No, it's not good. It's a good experience. It's a good puzzle. I just don't have fun playing it. It's purely a challenge. That's all it is, is to get as good a score as we can get. And this is what I'll ask you about. Playing with the people I play with, and it's all Euro gamers pretty much. And I have a variety of people, but we all go to the same board game club. So it's Euro gamers, so we do play it, I guess, fairly seriously. Although we like to smack talk during games. During Hanabi, we feel like it's cheating to talk about anything else other than just giving clues. Because if you go, this one's a green, and that one's a green. Well, that one should be played, well, maybe. Or the way you point at them. So... That is <laughs> to that sort of possible cheating we play it quite flat and the other thing is they use a lot of negative information yeah. as in if I have a card and you've told me this and this is red I know that's not red and you say this and this is are, these, these are twos I now know that's not a red two and it's possible especially towards the end of the game to work out what a card is with no clues on it that, that yes. breaks right. my head and- absolutely so we, we're playing with Tars so I play with good friend of mine a couple of days ago we played it half a dozen times over the course of a day overnight in my view and putting the tiles in different configurations to each other because we're playing with the deluxe set to point out oh, that is a red that's a, and we would go so what do you know about your things that's that's a blue this is neither blue nor white nor yellow nor is it a three nor a two this is and that's what we knew about our tiles that's it. and it was like Oh, and people couldn't come. We were at a barbecue. People couldn't come and talk to us. It was like, no, I've forgotten everything. This is not what's happened. <laughs> and there was, uh, it's a way of playing. Yeah. It's very, very challenging. And uh, those guys were so good at it. They'd know exactly what a tile was. And I'd be like, wow. Well, <laughs> that's certainly a way to play. And, there's, and that's certainly a le- legitimate way to play. But I, I'm with you that I don't think I would have as much fun with it if I played it all the way. You know, there's some games that I know that I have fun with and I'm thinking I have fun with because I'm not playing it with my most gamery friends because they will suck the life right out of it. They'll be the ones I absolutely do want to play other games with. But some games, it's like, you know what? They're not going to be much fun. I'm reminded of story. Uh, uh, you ever play the card game Moo? Is it M-U, that um, one? Moo and Mare sometimes? Yeah, no. And you. You yeah, would do no. a lot of times, right? <laughs> No, I haven't. Okay, so that's 
It's kind of a famously difficult game. It's a five-player trick-taking game with variable partnerships and bidding and an over-trump and an under-trump. I mean, it's got a lot of stuff. And the first time I played it, I thought, this is crazy. This is so much. This is not fun. Then another time we played it, I thought, oh, this is a little better than I thought. But the trouble is it would be like years between opportunities to play it. My third time in my life I got to play it, we played with, uh, it was one of our game of the month back when we were doing that. We played every week for four weeks in a row. And at some point during that month, someone said, you know what? Let's just try playing fast and we will make mistakes and that's okay. And that was the most fun we've ever had with that game. And the reason I tell that story is because it's a little bit like how we do with Hanabi. Now, I don't play, if, if anyone watched me playing Hanabi, either with my friends or with my daughter, they would say, you're not playing fast, you know, and we're not. We're playing kind of slow. But we are having a lot of fun talking about things, and we do not worry very much about mistakes. In fact, someone, you know, I give a clue, and they discard a five, and you think, oh, how could you do that? And we laugh, and we move on. And that is probably the key for how much we enjoy the game. And I can only imagine, since... This game that could be as dry as any sort of look-ahead abstract or mastermind or any sort of real deep thinker like that, yet the Spiel des Jahres jury picked it because they must see that all really intelligent people play the game like I do. (laughs) Well, it it actually reminds me of, I, I, I hate to play in the competition. I had to play any game in the competition, or a tournament or organized play, because it sucks the fun out of it, right? And what I do when I play Hanabi is I enter a competition, but with myself. Yeah. So I think that's what's happening in my yeah, head. that off. That I put myself under pressure to do well, and that's why I stop having fun. Because I avoid all competitions, no matter what the game is. I go, no, no, because I know I want to win. I, I can be competitive in other areas of my life. I spent a long time playing rugby and doing other physical activities. I, I'll get it that over there. I want to play games for fun. Yep. All right. So, okay. <laughs> We're going to move on to one that was nominated this year. Another not a winner. I'm sorry. Clearly, I, I misread my own category. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> I've betrayed you horribly. It's a 2015 Rudiger Dawn from Haber. It's their step into more advanced games. It's Karuba. Now, all the players are going to have a grid in front of them, and they're going to place four temples and four matching coloured explorers in the same position as each other. So everyone's board starts the same. They're going to be around the edge of this grid. One player is going to draw a tile, so it's another bingo game. I think it's probably two gamer bingo games, and I've chosen them both in one section. That player draws the tile, reads out the number, everyone picks up that tile, and there's one of two things they can do with it. They can either place it anywhere on their board, attempting to build routes from the explorers to their colour temple, or they can discard it and move any number of the explorers a number of spaces equal to the number of exits there were from the tile. So the tile can have two, three, or four exits, and therefore you can move your explorers two, three, or four spaces in total between the lot of them. The first player to make each temple with the correct colour explorer gets a tile for points, and the second player to do it gets slightly fewer points, and down and so on, until up to the fourth player. It's a four-player game at max. The other way to score points is if you stop an explorer on a tile that has a diamond or a gold on, it's just a little picture, and they pick them up. Diamonds are worth one point, gold is worth two points. And once one person has reached all four temples with explorers, that's the end of the game. This game takes one minute to explain. The decisions in there, it's all simultaneous, so it is quick to play. The decisions are simple, but they are genuine decisions. And it's genuine as to what you're going to chase. And you can look at each other's boards and go, well, they're close to blue. Maybe I should go and chase yellow because I'm not going to get the top score in there. And everyone ends up with different looking boards. 
I like the fact that there's that race. It adds a little bit of interaction to it. The other thing I think I love about it is that I can play with family or non-gamers and I can play down a little bit. And rather than playing completely optimally and trying to win the game, I can say, do you know what? My first goal is to get to the Brown Temple. And then my second goal will be for myself to get to what have you. And I'm still playing the game and I'm not hitting the other people so much and they're still having fun and we can have a nice close game. Whereas in other games, sometimes, you know, when you game a lot and you kind of know you're, you're more used to games than people and you think you'll probably win if you try really hard. Sometimes I find ways to play that doesn't ruin it and doesn't affect their game and i find it great in karuba so i can sit around the family and we can all have lots of fun with it so it's a complete hit for me mark karuba have you played it yes i have and i liked it quite a bit too this is one of those games that i feel sorry for only because it had the misfortune of coming out the same year as code names because had it not it might have been my pick for spiel des Jahres. i really like it quite a bit but you no know, nothing can stand up to code names code names is too awesome but on its own Never mind the Spill of Shars, because you certainly did when we were coming up with this list. But on its own... Have I told you that I've picked two card games really... for the dice games thing? <laughs> I know. On its own, it's, I think it's really good. Now, did you ever play Take It Easy? No, I don't think so. Oh, okay. So Take It Easy. This is what Karuba seemed to, well, I don't want to say copy, but just be inspired from. So Take It Easy was a game where everyone had these little boards to fill out and, and one person would have uh, a tile they would draw randomly and everyone would have the matching tile, just like you described in Karuba. And you play it and you make this little grid and then you score it out just on numbers. So that was great. And you know, 30 people in a room could play the exact same game of Take It Easy together. And it was a great game. It's been around since the 90s and it's been in a few different iterations. But what always sort of undercut the fun of Take It Easy was the end game scoring was just about math. You know, you've got four nines in a row, that's four nines is 36 points, and five fives is 25, and you add it up. So you'd play this game, and then pretty soon everyone goes to their calculators at the end to figure out what their score is. And I always thought, man, it's so fun, the gameplay. It just, the scoring system lets it down at the end. And then here along comes Karuba, and I thought, not only is the scoring just way easier, but it adds this fun little jungle exploration uh, thematic thing going on, which I think is great. And... I really like your point about you can play down a little bit. When I was going over a bunch of games in a series we did on my podcast about the top 100 games or something like that, at some point it kind of emerged that a, a common thread in some of the best games, especially Spiel des Jahres type games, is that quality you just described where the game can kind of be played in at least a couple different gears. You can play it sharky with gamers if you want to. And you know Carcassonne is that way where you can really hose people and uh, there was another one, was, oh, Ticket to Ride's kind of that way. But you can also sort of hang back and say, you know, we're just going to play a fun game tonight. And Carcassonne's that way, and Ticket to Ride's that way, and Karuba's that way too, I think. Yeah, it's a really good little game. Yeah, it's, it's take it easy. I just looked up while you were talking briefly there. I've played the app. There you go. There's, a gen, there's the generation thing. There, yeah. <laughs> I think a lot of oh, these games hey, I'll talk to my okay, kids. Okay, youngster. I'll talk to my kids and they'll be like, well, I've played the app. That's the same thing, right? Okay. <laughs> Right. <laughs> but right, right. deceptively simple, Karuba. I kind of, I bought it because it was Hubba and I had faith in the publisher and was surprised at how much fun I had with it. Yeah, a good one for sure. I agree. Cool. On that we have got some agreements. Right. We're going to move on to the next section. We're going to discuss six dice games that come in in under an hour. So, 
Mark will crack straight on with the first of our six dice games we're going to discuss, and this is your fail, I'm afraid. Yes. Now let me make sure dice games. That's the you're gonna all your games are gonna have dice though, right? Dice and or cards. Oh, <laughs> all right, fine, whatever. Okay, so my game. I'm kind of notorious in my circles for being the most curmudgeonly guy that can't figure out what everyone likes about the game called Strike from 2012, designed by Dieter Nussle, I think, and published by Robinsberger. Two to five players. Oh, what can I say about Strike? One of my other friends had played it back when it first came out, I guess. And he played it at BGG Con, and he's like the only other person on the planet I found that's had my same reaction, which is that I don't see what there is to see about this game. It's uh, a game of knocking each other out of competition for rolling dice. Boy, it's about that brain dead, too, if you ask me. But I'll, I'll do a little better job than that with the description. <laughs> so you have the coolest part, I'll admit, is that you when you open in the box, which is a sort of medium-sized kind of thick box, what you're left with is a little, for all the world, looks like a little stadium, uh, a little oval-shaped stadium that the box bottom uh, makes. And that's important because it's like a giant dice cup as you roll the dice into this little stadium and all the players are going to be rolling the dice into the stadium. The dice are, they're basically D6s. They have uh, one through six, but in place of one of the sides, probably in place of the one, I think, I'm not quite sure, is an X. Everyone starts with something like eight dice, probably varies by number of players. And you roll a die into the arena. And if there are any matching dice, in the arena, then you get to take them back and back into your personal supply. But if, you know, there's a three and a four out there and you throw your one die in there and it's a five, well, that die is lost to you. Now you can keep going and you can throw another die in there and hopefully you'll match up some dice and maybe now you roll another five and you get to take the original die you rolled plus the second die you rolled and they go back into your supply. Doesn't that sound fun? Oh my gosh. So, no, but... The people who tell me I don't get it, they say, like, you don't understand. It's a dexterity game. You, you, you have some, you know, some technique or some English or you, whatever, you flick the die or whatever, you try to knock the other ones because if there's only a three and a four and a five there, you can only ever match one die. But if you, like, flick it, maybe you'll knock them all into being twos or something. And won't that be fantastic? And I think, like, uh, I don't get it. Uh, it just doesn't, I mean, <laughs> I get physically what happens. I don't see any fun whatsoever in this game. And my friends, who I, I like a lot of light games and a lot of games that don't seem like there's even much game there. But this, to me, just seems so silly. I mean, it's so pointless and not very fun. But they have a hoot playing this game. And they kind of have a hoot watching me have a horrible time playing this game because it's like, oh, there's grumpy old Mark over there. And I don't get it, you know. So then you play. There's a there's a few little wrinkles. I'm, I'm not maybe not giving the game quite its full due, although, okay, anyway, whatever. So if you roll an X, that die is definitely lost to you no matter what. And if you roll such a combination that you get to pull all of the dice out of there, whether that's like a whole fistful of dice or even just two, but if you leave the arena empty, then the next player has to roll, take all of their remaining dice, roll them all at once into the arena. Of course, they'll get to take any duplicates back in their hand. But since the objective is to not go out by losing all of your dice, it's a big disadvantage to have to roll a dice. And that's called like a super strike or something. Everyone gets excited and they say super strike and they roll the dice and I'm still rolling my eyeballs. Uh, I don't understand what the deal is about this game. But I'm telling you, I kind of hear... Maybe some echoes on your side. Have you played this game? 
I haven't played it, nor do I have a single bone in my body wishing to play it. So I, well, I hadn't heard of it. Well, I hadn't. I don't really? remember having heard of it. And I put oh on a it's, video on BGG this it's like a, It's a big deal, at least among my circle friends. I don't think it's just a Southern California thing. I think like a lot of people at BGGCon and everything, it's, it's sort of like it's got some momentum and it's got some interest in it. And I have to say that everyone else but me – and my buddy Greg in Texas. Everyone else but the two of us seem to think it's fantastic and great fun. And if I would just get off my high horse, I would actually have fun with this game. So maybe you will too. But I, you know, I've, I've actually played in an LCR group, and I thought the the, the sort of <laughs> disparity that gamers give LCR, and yet my same group of gamers love Strike. I thought I don't understand. The, the, in both cases, what you're all the only thing you're getting excited about is the random nature of dice and how sometimes they turn up in surprising combinations and isn't that hilarious? I don't get it. I really don't get it. That's strike. You should go you should go play it. <laughs> I didn't want to talk about strike because it looked terrible. Have you played Dungeon Fighter? No, I have not. Okay, so uh, nor have I, although I've been close to it. And it just seems like Dungeon Fighter but reduced to the barest of bones. Well, it's a dungeon fight. You've got to go under your leg and you've got to bounce it and there are different dice and you have a target. This just... I don't know. I don't know. This was... Uh, I'm glad you picked it in your miss section. Otherwise, uh, we may have had to cancel the recording. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm telling you, one of these times you should play it. It'll be the sort of thing and pretty soon everyone at London on board will think it's the most fun ever. Especially, you know, when it's like 2 o'clock in the morning and everyone's punchy. But I don't, I don't get it. <laughs> I'll resign if that happens. <laughs> okay, let's move on to another dice game. It's from the Galaxy 2014 from Wei Hua Huang and Tom Lehman and published by Rio Grande Games. Based on Race for the Galaxy, the famous card game, it's about building a civilization tableau with science fiction theme to it, and you're going to build up planets and developments. And you're going to do that by starting with three tiles, which will show some mix of planets and developments. And you also get five white dice. Plus, those first three tiles might give you some extra dice for you to roll. The face of the white dice corresponds to the five possible phases in the game, and there's also an asterisk on there which is wild. And you're going to roll the dice behind a shield, and you're going to line them up with the phases which you've rolled. You can then move any dice to onto the little board that's behind your shield to say that's the phase you wish to activate this turn. And when everyone's rolled their dice, they can pick up their shields. All the phases which have been activated for the turn are going to happen, so they must have been chosen by one, at least one of the players. And then the round's going to start again, but the actual phases are, if you roll an explore symbol and eyeball, you can take two money or you can draw tiles to add to the little pile you have on your civilization board. They always get added to the underneath, and only the topmost tile on the stack are you able to build at any time, although you can discard before you add more to your tile stack. You can also develop or settle, and that's going to allow you to place those dice onto the top of either the development or the planet stack. They're going to have a cost in dice on them, and once you place enough dice to build them, they're going to get added to your tableau, and they're going to give you something. They're going to give you some power, they're going to give you extra dice, or they're going to give you the ability to manipulate things in some way. There's produce, so that means if there's any coloured planets in your tableau which don't have a dice on them, you're going to be able to put a dice on them. And then the last phase is ship, which lets you move those dice from the planets and you can be able to take money or sometimes points for moving those dice. 
The white dice are balanced, as I said, and the colour ones have got different bias on them. So the military ones are going to have more off the settles, and you have purple ones that have got lots of ship and what have you. And you're supposed to be able to build up your dice pool that you can use each turn and put some kind of bias on it so that you're pushing in this direction or you're pushing in that direction. Then in order to get dice back, when you spend them, they go into your civilization pool. In order to get them back, you have to spend money. So that's why you generate money in the game, to be able to put dice back into your cup to roll. And you need to get at least one a turn anyway. Once someone places 12 tiles, or there's a set number of points chips in the game, once all of those have been taken, that's the end. And you're going to add up your points for the planets and developments and any points you've collected from developing. But Mark, <laughs> roll for the galaxy came from race for the galaxy. What? are your thoughts on both games i guess i really like race for the galaxy i'm not one of those that's played it a bazillion times except maybe versus the ai on a computer but i really like it and it's a game that is sort of well known for its i guess you might say complexity there's there's a learning curve to the iconography there's a learning curve to the card deck and maybe even to the strategy especially how fast you have to go there's a reason it's called Race for the Galaxy. You know, I come from a background of already liking the parent game. So I have that reaction that sometimes happens when an, another game comes along and I think like, well, huh, why would I play Roll for the Galaxy instead of Race for the Galaxy? I, I like the original already. And this other version, it isn't shorter or faster or... That's usually the way my brain works is thinking new versions, maybe it'll streamline it somehow, but it could go the other way, right? I don't find it all that much deeper or telling a richer story, you know, the other directions it can go. So I end up thinking, hmm, it just maybe is more for people who just love race so much, but they've played it hundreds and hundreds of times. They just want something different. And so I don't think there's anything that I really dislike about Roll for the Galaxy. I just think like I, it seems very unnecessary to me when the card game is already so good and so so fulfilling. I also have to wonder, I mean, there, there have to be people who just encounter Roll for the Galaxy as their first game in this mm, universe or franchise or milieu, whatever it is. But I can't even imagine what that's like. I can only play and learn Roll for the Galaxy in terms of, oh, that's how they're using dice here to replace this thing in the card game. It was all viewed through the lens of relating to the original game and then thinking, why don't I just play the original game? Exactly right. Because I tried to remove that that lens, right, that filter, in order to treat the game on its own merits. So Because I do like Ray, and exactly like you, I haven't played it hundreds and hundreds of times, more like dozens of times. In Roll for the Galaxy... I think the limitation in choices in that you're only drawing a couple of tiles at a time and they do have a development or a planet on either side, but it's very much more luck based if you're going to get a run of tiles that work together because you get bonuses. For example, if you use a yellow dice to ship a yellow dice from a yellow planet, it scores you three points. Whereas if they're all different colored dice, you only score one point, which can make a difference. And whether I get those, all those yellow planets to generate those yellow dice is I think too lucky completely solitaire role for the galaxy to the point where i learned it in one game and we played a couple more games in the same table and people were playing different phases and almost mm -hmm. inching into playing different rounds as each other because it yeah. really doesn't matter what anyone else does you just look at the phases selected okay great 
It's the only time I need to look up and see what you guys are doing. Of course, right, the, but the card game is a little bit like that too, don't you think? I can kind of look and see what you're doing, especially if someone's like say going for a produce strategy. So you know they're going to be are oh, like they're li- they're likely to develop goods on planet, so I don't need to choose that. Or mm-hmm. yeah, m- maybe it's because I have played it a few times. So you can kind of read the cards and read the player a bit more. So maybe that's a bit harsher role for the galaxy. Maybe if you did play it dozens of times, you'd say, "Oh, look, they've got that planet on top of their stack. They're going to be doing this." So I can read. I don't need to choose that phase because I know they're going to. Yeah. In race, I just felt like it was more intuitive. There was more of a flow to it. It's quicker, <laughs> quicker yeah. with more depth. That's that's not good. And as much as I try and remove that lens, I can't. I have to look at it and I have to go. There's no point to it. I don't enjoy it. There's no aspect of it which is more enjoyable apart from perhaps aesthetically it's quite nice with those dice and what have you. Yeah, I think so too. It's like I, there's nothing exactly wrong with it. And you can ask yourself a thought experiment. Well, what if race never existed? Would I like this game? But there's no, there's no point in that question because race does exist. And it's, <laughs> it's just, uh, I think, a superior game. If chicken didn't exist, would I eat dirt? <laughs> <laughs> Yes, That's my review like of Roll for the Galaxy. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> you're going to bring us on to another dice version of an older brother game. Right. This is uh, Nations the Dice Game, published in 2014, designed by so we're gonna read Rustan uh-oh, Hawkinson, uh, published by, oh no, Latapilit... <laughs> The Finnish game company, right? Those ones, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> those ones, yeah. You know, I've only played Nations, the real game, let's call it, the, the, the original game, just once. Those, you know, big Civ games, and I know Nations is, is one of a, a crop of those that's trying to be a little bit streamlined. I mean, it's, it's not Civ, and it's not Through the Ages, although when I played it, I thought it's not much shorter than Through the Ages, actually. But um, some people do think Nations has a little bit more in a more streamlined package of a few hours, but then here along comes Nation's Dice, and we heard like, well, this is going to be lightning fast. Compared to those games, it kind of is, you know, and it is recognizably Civ building, because what you're doing is you have a bunch of tiles. They represent all those familiar things that you know from Civ games before, like, oh, now I've got just warriors. Later on, I can upgrade to cavalry. Later on, I can upgrade to knights. Later on, I can upgrade to tanks or however far it goes. And likewise, in transportation technologies or uh, economic technologies or things like that, or leaders. It has all those sort of things. It takes places over four major phases, which if they don't call them epics, they probably should. You know, So it has all that familiar both tech tree stuff and epic type stuff that goes on in civ building games. But it's all done with some pretty familiar dice type mechanics you know that they have custom dice you know there's ones that are more combat oriented there are ones that are more resource and production oriented and there's the blue dice that are more i don't know technology oriented let's say you start with a i think everyone starts with the exact same set of dice if i recall correctly uh, based on the tiles that you everyone starts with and then on your turn you're going to roll those things and based on what dice come up which ones you spend to buy more tiles can upgrade your abilities. So you might have a little bit of uh, economic production in the beginning, but by spending 
uh, a die face on one particular epic or round, you might buy a better tile and replace one of the ones that you start with. One thing that I think is pretty clever is you don't keep expanding more and more and more tiles so you've got this mega civilization that has all these characteristics. They keep overlaying each other, so you have a limited number. That's actually a really smart design decision, I think, that keeps the game really tight. And this is why this is definitely not a fail for me. It's, it's, it's in this near-miss category. And likewise, you can do the same thing on combat and everything. And you have to make some tough choices because if you upgrade your, all your you know, combat abilities the best you can, you're probably putting tiles on top of things that could otherwise be used for increasing your tech tree development or your gold development, your economic development. So you're making some of those tough choices. And the leaders have some neat effects too, whether it's re-rolling dice or some other things, but there's not like a lot of crazy effects. There's actually a very limited set of effects, and it's the way the dice come in combination. I've kind of glossed over the fact that an important thing, the strategic point that you make, and I think maybe in some cases the strategic point you have to make, is investing in tiles that give you more dice. So even though you're going to have the same number of tiles that define your civilization, you can grow the number of dice that you're rolling, which increases your strategic options as the game progresses. So the reason it, it falls a little bit short for me is because it's almost so successful in terms of streamlining things and making it run smoothly. And it plays, oh gosh, I'm trying to think. Uh, once people know it, I always hate that caveat, but once people know it, probably 30 minutes, but even your first time is definitely under an hour, maybe like 45 minutes, as long as people don't sweat the decisions too bad and and it's listed as 20 to 40 and I think that's true for people who really know it I bet they can race through a game in 20 minutes well if you think of a Civ game boiled down to 20 minutes you might think wow how much did they boil it down well they boiled it down this much it definitely has a lot of the cool stuff that goes on in Civ games it's there you know, thematically only if you really want to look for it you know it's real easy to suddenly start thinking of that tile as two red dice for combat rather than saying, oh, that's, I've invested in battleships because it doesn't matter that it's battleships. It matters that it's two red dice and it's pretty quickly you kind of see the bones of the game and just the dice and resources and, and the theme, which is really there on all the tiles and the leaders have different names and, you know, there's Cleopatra and there's, you know, Nikola Tesla, I think, or Thomas Edison, whoever that is on the cover of the box and Queen Victoria. There's all these different cool historic civilization type things in there but in being so successful in how quick playing this game is they almost boiled all of the Civ flavor out of it so I do like it and I have a feeling I'm, I'm sounding like a Goldilocks I'm not exactly sure what I would really want you know do you do you want it to be an hour and a half dice game not really do you want it to be this 30 minute dice game well it's not quite enough going on there either I Maybe something tuned a little bit with a little bit more theme and a little bit heavier would have been my ideal, but this didn't quite hit the mark for me. Yeah, I, I put this as a near miss as well. And when you think about someone creating a, a dice version, as with you, I'm thinking they're going to stream like especially a big game like Nations. You're thinking maybe half the playtime, something like that. They've gone for an eighth of the playtime. <laughs> they really cut this down. Yeah. yeah, I mean, like, well, get rid of that, get rid of that, get rid of that, and make it quick and. That is one of the selling points of it. And I'm going to come at it through a lens again, unfortunately, because I do like Nations a lot. And we, we did talk about, reviewed it fairly recently with Steve. What that means is that when I approach this game, I kind of approach it with a Euro head on. And I, I want to plan. I want to recreate what I do 
only writ small, if you like, in this little arena that we're playing in. And in this type of a game, and the theme makes me put it in that sort of a Euro mindset, the luck of the dice can be a little bit irritating in it. And that's the only thing that makes it a near miss. If it is something more thematic, I can just go, ah, it's just a dice game. Because you put nations on it, because you're making me think, because you're making me deal with my resources, I, I want my decisions to be slightly, slightly more, I want it slightly drier. That's what I want. <laughs> I want no moisture I know. left. I know, it's kind of... <laughs> it, it just makes it hard to plan. You know, the publisher must be thinking, the publisher must be thinking, what do you want? <laughs> oh my gosh. Don't listen to us. In fact, I, I do know the designer does listen, yeah. and I'm really sorry, Rustan. <laughs> He wants a bit more. I want a bit less. Yeah. Don't, don't try and please the masses. Because it is a, a near miss, I think, for both of us in this episode is a good game. And the game we're happy to play, just not the, the cream of the crop, I think. And, right. and that's right. certainly so. Yeah, Nations. I, and I still own it and I'll still play it and I'm, I'm happy to get it out. And the brief playtime is a selling point for sure. But it, again, it might be that input output. I'm bitten a bit too much in to be screwed a little bit on luck. Don't know. Maybe that's just me. It's back to Hanabi again, yep. isn't it? I'm taking it too seriously. <laughs> okay. My <laughs> near miss is a 2016 game. It's Omino's from Andrew Harmon and Yay Games. And I did talk about it because I just got it at the UK Games Expo. We played it there and we chatted about that. And I've been playing it several times since then. It's an abstract dice game. It's played on a grid. It's a six by six square with four extra squares added onto the middle of each side if you like so it's kind of a really fat cross and each of you chooses a color from the four colors in the game and you place two dice for your color somewhere on the board they have to be a certain distance apart on your turn all you do is you roll one die if it matches a color of die on the board you can move any die of that color so if i roll red i can move a red die three spaces and then i push put this dice on the board there are two wild sites one of which is a snake which lets me re-roll any color on the board and then i place the snake and that can be added to any color grouping and then i there's a raw which allows you to move any dice on the board three and then put the raw down again that's wild now why am i talking about groupings because if you get a set of four or more off your color and you can include wild die in there you take them off the board and you score them and it's the first to 13 points wins the game and that is exactly how you play it. It's that simple to explain. Almost no one I've played with has disliked it. Now, it is completely abstract, and I do not play with a lot of abstract players at all. So I was quite surprised that people have taken to it. But the flip side, and really why it's a near miss, is that no one has loved it. Yeah, there's no one that's gone, oh, that's great, let's play that again and again. They've all gone, oh, yeah. And we play it two times, maybe three, and then, okay, cool. And no one ever asks for it again. But if I put it out, they go, oh, yeah, Omino's. Yeah, cool. I will play that. It just fits in that just below top-notch category of everyone's happy to play it. No one's clamoring for it. Hmm. Well, I was kind of surprised to see this on your list because I think you were the guys who put this game on my radar screen. And I thought, oh, that looks kind of fun. This, And it's, last I looked, not the easiest thing to find in the States. So it was actually... And maybe it still is going to be sort of on my back burner. I was like, you know, I got to keep my eye open. When I get a chance to, certainly if I get a chance to play it, I want, I'm going to jump on it. But it, maybe if I just, you know, have to be the first kid on my block to own it, I would go for it. It's because it's so simple and so quick. It's one of those games, I think, that I will continue to throw in my games bag. 
And and if we are sitting around or there is 20 minutes, 30 minutes to fill, that's exactly what it is. It's, we'll just get this out because I can teach it to you in 30 seconds. I just taught it to you guys, right? And we're away and we're playing and we're not faffing around and we can get a full game in and it will be funny and we'll all screw each other up and people will moan a bit about the dice, but it's quick enough that it doesn't really matter and it is interactive and it does get people talking. So it, it ticks a lot of boxes and I guess it's a very near miss, but the creature hasn't been awoken. I must have forgot to plug it in somewhere because it hasn't, you know, <laughs> right. it's it's hard for me. It's just a terrible thing to say on a podcast when you're putting yourself out there to discuss about games. I can't put my finger on it exactly why. No. Oh, yeah. I can't say it because it plays like a classic. It plays like, I feel like I played this 20 years ago, but apparently not because it's a brand new game. And in terms of hard to get, I think it's a very slow burning release. And I believe later on in the year, it's going to be more widely available. Okay. All right. Well, I'm still going to keep my eye open for it. Still sounds interesting to me. Definitely, definitely try it. It's, it is interesting. And it's so close for me that I'm sure that a lot of people are going to find it a hit. And you said abstract, but uh, this is still dice. And so, you know, I always like abstracts that have some imperfect information. And if it's a dice-based abstract, it definitely has that, right? So Yeah, I mean, it's abstract in terms of theme. I don't think he's even tried. There's mm. supposed to be an Egyptian theme on there somewhere, but I think the, just the theme is is it's an ancient Egyptian board game. <laughs> so, <laughs> <in terms> of... <laughs> okay. All right, you ready for my hit? Of well, the I'm ready game? for the next game you're going to talk about. I don't know. <laughs> it, well, it's funny. Uh-oh, you're going to call me out on this one. It's Las Vegas from 2012, designed by Rudiger Dorn, the same guy who designed Karuba you talked about a little earlier, and published by Alea. Well... What can I say about Las Vegas? Well, for one thing I can say is that it lost to Kingdom Builder the year that it came out for Spiel des Jahres. And knowing what I know now, although I probably would have been kind of shocked had Las Vegas won, now I think it's the better of the games. And it's a game that's been a slow burn for me, that my friends really liked it. It sounds a little bit like Strike so far, but but this time I came around and I thought, when I first played it, I thought, yeah, yeah, whatever, that's that's kind of fun. And then... We played it again as a closer another night. I mean, this is definitely skewing on the shorter side of all the games we've been talking about, I think. Well, let me describe what happens. It's got a Las Vegas casino-based theme. Not that that matters too much. Everyone's got their uh, identical set of colored six-sided dice, so you can tell who owns the blue dice and who owns the green dice, that sort of thing. And there's a bunch of cards that are really just money. It's the payout. And so in each round... Um, some cards are going to be flipped over and laid down next to each casino. So there's some uncertainty, but it'll be face-up. So you'll get to see which casinos pay out the most. And then on your turn, you roll dice. And if you want to put dice on a casino to potentially win the payout for that casino, you have to pick the matching die face, and you have to um, uh, put a, a die on there. And what's going to matter is like, so this casino over here that has a 40,000 payout, well, it's the three casino. So every time you roll threes, the threes can go on that particular one. But the trouble is, it's one of these ties knock each other out kind of thing. So I might have three threes trying for this big payout, and you have two, 
And then on the very last turn, you roll your last three and you tie me. Your three has to go there because it can't go anywhere else. And then here comes Ronan. He only put one stupid die on that one and he gets the whole darn payout because the two of us knock each other out. So that kind of um, random. Unfortunately, Ronan definitely does not do that. <laughs> <laughs> As we'll hear in a while. <laughs> yeah. So that's the sort of thing where either that sounds fun. Yeah. You know, didn't I say this before? Either that's fun and silly to you or that's fun and f- stupid or fun and frustrating. <laughs> Uh, or silly and frustrating. But in my case, I actually sort of skewed towards the, ah, I think this is kind of stupid in the beginning, but we kept playing it because my friends kept liking it. And not only did I come around, I thought, you know what, I think I better own a copy of that game myself because I could play this at work, I could play this with family, it's just very fun. And everyone seems to have a really good time. And I said that I thought it was dumb in Strike, like LCR, everyone just gets excited about the way dice happen to fall and the random stuff that seems to happen. There's a little bit of that here in Las Vegas. It is quite light, but there is still, very different than those other games, real decisions to be made. They're not big decisions, but they're real decisions. I guess it's basically on probabilities, but probably a lot of dice games, the decisions in them are about probabilities in terms of what might get rolled. I do wish the game had one little tweak. I always think that it would be good to have a second, especially if you're playing with like five players, to have a second place money award for each casino, but uh, the, the r- rules aren't that way, and I think I might even suggest that online, and no one, no one agreed with me, but, um, and we haven't played it, so it's untested, whatever. You play it out of the box, it's winner take all, and um, it's just been a light, fun hit as a closer. This isn't, this isn't even really a super filler. This is skewing, even though it lasts a little bit longer by the time you play three rounds, this is skewing, at least in terms of strategic heft, more to, towards the lower end of just a filler, but it's a good one. And it's one of those games, you know, when we talk about Spiel des Jahres too, one of the things I always really like about it on the nominees list is sometimes a game pops up on the nominees or recommended list, not the winner, and you think like, I've never even heard of that game. What's that? And then people seek it out. And that was the true of the game, uh, that's, that uh, co-op yeah, solitaire yeah. sort of thing from a few years back. And other years too, you know, it was like, hey, what's that? You know, and uh, Las Vegas is one of those for me and has slowly clawed and climbed its way up into a place in my collection. Unfortunately, when this got nominated for Spill Yaros, it didn't create, cause me to say, what's that game? It caused me to question the sanity of the jury <laughs> because I'd played it. <laughs> now, I have only played it once. So you're telling me it grew on you. Maybe I need to leave that door open. But I hated it. Oh. I just could not get on with it whatsoever. Our ties were so aggravating. And playing it with a bunch of friends at the time, everyone was trying to make you tie. So people were just getting blocked entirely out of the game, and someone with one dice was winning most of the awards. And it was just, just oh, it was driving me crazy. It was just a game of constant king making. <laughs> I just felt like I had no choice and no control, and it didn't matter how many dice I put in the casino because someone would then make it their mission to equal, not beat, but equal that number just to be annoying. Oh, God, Mark. <laughs> I can't believe you put this as a hit. It is a hit. Yeah, it's, it's a begrudging hit for me because it just is, is successful. Now, you should try it with like three players or something. You can fool yourself into thinking there's a little more strategy in there that there really is. But I have a feeling you have a pretty good read on what the game is and how much you're going to like it anyway and uh, or not in this case. Well, what this episode is doing is make me start to question my gaming groups because apparently they just wreck games that everyone else likes. <laughs> I could tell you about the uh, we played a game of Niagara once and just broke it. 
It's just the game just we were so mean to each other that no one could finish the game. Yeah, now I'm with you on that one. That one uh, underwhelms, unfortunately. That, that one as well, didn't it? 2005 or yeah. something? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Alas. Anyway, the last dice game for this episode is going to be Pandemic the Cure 2014 from Matt Leacock and Z-Man Games. The game is based obviously on Pandemic, another one that's based on something. I think a lot of dice games germinate in that way because how do you make a new sort of a dice game? How do you make it appealing? Well, sticking a theme on is going to help in some way. In this case, there are six continents. They're numbered one to six. And there are four diseases, as in Big Brother. And the diseases are represented by D6. Now, at the beginning of the game, you roll 12 of these dice. They're in four different colours. And you seed the continents with them. But the thing is, with each of the diseases, the D6 are weighted in different ways. So, for example, for the black dice, there are three threes on there, a four, a five, and a cross. And we'll come back to a cross because every colour has got one cross on one face. So they are much more likely to appear in continent number three. And they have the pictures of the actual real continents on them. I can't remember which one they were. But much more likely to appear in continent number three than they are in four or five. Each of the players picks a character, and each of them are going to give you 5d6 apart from one. And the dice have got lots of symbols in common on them, and they have some symbols which are going to be unique to the roll which you have chosen. So on your turn, you're going to roll the dice, and sort of symbol you're going to get are like a boat. That's going to let you move to one adjacent continent from where your pawn is at the moment. A plane, which will let you move to any continent. A syringe, which is going to let you either remove one die, put it in the middle, which is considered the treatment center. Also, a syringe can be used to remove dye from the treatment center back into the bag, which will be important. You'll see in a second. There's like a sample jar, which you can sample a dye from the treatment center and take it to you because you're going to need some of those samples in order to find cures and win the game. Some of the special powers, like the medic has two or three syringes on one side, so he's going to be more effective at treating the disease. It sounds familiar. The dispatcher has a helicopter, which allows them to save it and airlift any pawn around the place to help out the whole team. Or the researcher can share their samples to anyone else. Usually you have to be on the same continent as each other to share. Also on each side, there's a biohazard. And every time you run a biohazard, that's going to push the biohazard level up. And there's this circular rack which has two little syringes in it, one of which tracks your biohazards. When they cross a line, it means two things. Firstly, you pick up all the dye which are left in the treatment center, which is why you want to clear that out. And also a certain number, depending on how far into the game you are, and you roll them and you add them onto the continents, which is a similar thing you do to the, at the end of a round. And that can cause outbreaks, and I'll get to that in a second. The other syringe tracks the outbreak level and eight outbreaks and you lose the game, which will sound familiar from the pandemic rules. Just to finish off your turn quickly, you spend your die to do the actions. If you're on the same continent as someone, you can give samples and then you roll for the cure, which is how you're going to try and win. Any die you've saved with sample jars, you roll them, you're trying to roll 13 or more on those weighted dice. So it's, it's a little bit funny about which disease is more likely to be treated than the other one or which is more likely to be cured. And then you have to dip into the disease bag and roll a number of dice according to how far you into the game and add them to the continents. Now, no continent can have more than three dice of the same color. If it does, there's an outbreak and that dice jumps across to the next continent. If it creates more than three of a color in that continent, you have another outbreak. So things can trigger onwards. And that's where you go back and you see those blacks where you've got three threes. Once you start building those up on that continent, you really have to get in there because you're more likely to roll lots of them. The crosses, all the way back I was talking about on the diseases, they can be spent to get event cards which are going to give you special one-off powers during the course of the game you can save them up as a team and decide how you want to do them so 
you win by finding the four cures or you lose by having too many biohazard rolls or too many outbreaks. Mark, have you played Pandemic the Cure? Yeah, I have a couple times. It probably would have been considered a near miss for me had I talked about it in, in my list of games. It's another one that I think, what would it be like to have played this game and not the original, if the original had never existed? In this case, I think I can imagine it a little more easily than I could when we were talking about that with Roll for the Galaxy. And I tell you, I'm really fascinated to just kind of hear the workings of designer Matt Leacock's mind when he talks about game design. He's done a couple you know, podcasts or TED Talks or whatever the heck he does. He really thinks deeply about game design, especially smooth gameplay. I mean, this is a game that's really polished, I think. And, you know, the way the dice are designed and the way the continents are designed, you kind of touched on that. I mean, it's there's just little good designer touches all over this game. And yet, I end up thinking... Uh, why don't I just play the original game? I just love the original game. I like the way the card stack works in that game. The first time I played it, I thought, this isn't even much shorter. Now, other people told me, you're playing it wrong. Pandemic the Cure is quite a bit shorter than Pandemic the Board Game. And I guess I'll take their word for that. But I didn't find it hugely different. Its primary interest for me was sort of a geeking out on the game design of it and saying, oh, look what Matt Leacock decided to do with dice as opposed to cards. And that's kind of interesting. But uh, I still came away thinking, I think I'd rather just play regular old Pandemic. Yeah, I don't think it's that much shorter than Pandemic. The appeal for me is I've played regular Pandemic a lot, probably 40, 50 times, something like that. I've even played Pandemic Legacy coming on 30 times because i've got a couple of games of it going one wow yeah one finished and one not finished which is hard not to spoil the one that's not finished you kind of try and be neutral and <laughs> oh that could be a good decision i'm not i don't know what's happening <laughs> don't do it don't do it <laughs> um played a lot of pandemic and i love it but with pandemic what happens now is of course i think i know what's best and you've got some control and you know what's likely at the top of the infection pile and you know what actions you can choose from and it brings that little bit of chaos in for me that little bit of unpredictability we can't forge a a four-turn plan of what we're going to do we're going to have to roll with it a little bit roll with the dice and i actually really enjoy that and a theme's coming through here that i'm a bit of a control freak which (laughs) but i I like (laughs) the fact then that it takes some of the stress of the game and trying to play optimally and trying to play really, really well because, well, let's just see what you roll and go from there. And, and we don't know what dice are going to come out huh. and we don't know how they're going to roll either. Whereas regular pandemic is, is that much more predictable that we kind of get in a pattern of playing it. We're pretty likely to win pandemic unless it's on the hardest level now. And and the cure, I don't find that. I find it very much a challenge. The funny thing for me is, is that I really enjoy it with the dice. Usually... I'd want some dice mitigation in a dice game and there's no dice mitigation apart from a couple of events and I love it. So maybe I don't know what I want. Maybe that's another theme that's coming through. <laughs> oh, that's pretty interesting. You know, one th- a funny side story maybe on Pandemic, The Cure, the last time I played it, you know, I, I think of Pandemic and Pandemic, The Cure, and certainly Pandemic Legacy as being games that are really thematic. To me, they're thematic. Doesn't mean they have zombies in them or spaceships, or God forbid, elves, or something like that. But I mean, it is about its thing, you know, which is this infectious outbreak across the entire globe. And, it, and, and what happens in the game is like that. And Pandemic the Cure is like that too, especially if you know 
the original game and what it's drawing from. But I was playing with these relatively new gamers, and uh, the one guy who brought it out said, like, you know, I like this game, but I don't, I just don't think it's very thematic. So I've made my Justice League of America version, and so like, you know, the roles were, and they had the hero clicks things to go with them. So, you know, I was Green Lantern, and someone else was Superman, and someone else was Wonder Woman, and the diseases were like these super villains, and it played just fine. And I thought, holy smokes, you know, you don't need any of that kind of stuff. I, I thought it was very strange for someone to play anything in the pandemic family and think it's just not very exciting or wow. thematic. I thought, what? What are you talking Somewhere about? Somewhere in London, Sean's head has exploded at the thought of playing Green Lantern in Pandemic the Cure. He's getting very excited. <laughs> he's like, oh, wow! Oh. Yeah, that would sell the game because he hates Pandemic, but anything with Green Lantern in, he's, he's sold. Uh, well, yeah, see, that's, that's what sold it on some of these guys. Crazy. I will say that in the second game of Pandemic Legacy, we're playing with a guy who likes thematic games. And he said, this game is really creating stories for me. And I started to like, see stories and the fact that certain cities come up again is making stories appear in my head. And I hadn't really thought about it. And then we went back to our other game of Pandemic Legacy. And I started seeing stories come through in it. Pandemic The Cure, where I think it's more thematic, is it's less controllable. And going back to that point, I don't know that a disease is going to flare up again in Istanbul if it's set up already, as in the infection pile. And therefore, in Pandemic The Cure, we might have just dealt with one continent, but now, boom, it appears somewhere else because we've rolled three of them in one go, and suddenly that's a problem. And that feels more like you're running around firefighting. I think maybe we, we talked about my job on the underground just offline a, a few minutes ago, and it feels a bit more like being at work for me. <laughs> okay, we've got the west end of the line held down. Ah, something's gone wrong in the middle. Quick, quick, get there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, all right, cool. Thank you very much for your thoughts on dice games. We're going to move on now to the final section. We're going to cover six random games and we're gonna somehow try and tie them together maybe maybe so welcome back for the final part of this episode with mark johnson and he's gonna lead us in with a shorter game that was a fail unfortunately Oh, and I'm going to get some heat on this one, too. I, I know I am. Maybe from you, maybe from other people. <laughs> and it maybe is a little harsh to call it a, a fail, but I'm, I'm not going to wimp out and back away from it now. The game I'm singling out here is uh, Splendor from 2014, designed by Marc Andre, published by Space Cowboys, uh, two to four players, 30 minutes. So Splendor is a very attractive game, like just about, well, not just about, I think like everything Space Cowboys does looks fantastic. And in this game, you've got five, I think, five different suits of, of colors of gems. The gems are represented not by gems themselves or wooden cubes or anything like that, but actually by these big, thick, chunky, like poker chip sort of things. That's the currency of the game. And what you're trying to do is be the first to 15 prestige points, which are gained by acquiring cards plus some possible personality-based bonuses. Now, the cards have these great artwork and landscape sort of things on them. Uh, they're laid out in a tableau of uh, like a lower rank of cards, a rung of cards, and then a middle rung and a top rung. They're separated by basically cost. So there's like the inexpensive ones on the bottom and the middle price ones in the middle and the expensive ones at the top that are worth the most points but cost the most things. They don't really have much in the way of in-game effects. You buy a card and then you lay it in front of you. The only real effect of having a card is that it may have some points on it that puts you towards that 
Magical 15, but it will also have like a one of those gems that I talked about as the currency sort of built into the card. So in addition to those big, awesome, chunky poker chips that you acquire and then later on spend to buy cards, there will be build a little mini economy, I guess you might say, I don't know, where you are buying cards so that you can buy other cards later on, more expensive ones that are going to be worth maybe more points. And then if you get certain combinations of cards and you're the first to get those combinations of cards, that's how you can get these bonus points that are represented by personality tiles. Now, none of the theming that I've barely described at all in this game even really matters. It's just kind of an abstract race for colors and points in a way that might remind someone, you know, if you've played Medici, that's a game that ostensibly has a theme, but it's really just about colors and points there too. That's how this game sort of lays out, and it plays very, very simple and smooth. You know, there's just a, a very pretty straightforward decision on your turn. You're either going to acquire some more gems, which is the money used in the game. You can get three of them from a common supply, or you're going to spend them, spending the gems that you've acquired previously and the built-in gems that are on cards that you've previously purchased. And then there's also another move you can do, which is actually a pretty important strategic move, which is where you reserve a card that's like you claim it, even though you can't really afford it yet. And then it uh, goes face down. That's a way of getting a card before someone gets it in front of you, or maybe even denying that card from another player. That also gets you a a special kind of gem called gold, which is kind of a, a wild. And so there's some strategy in there. When I've played it, everyone has had a pretty good time. Actually, they seem to like it better than I do. And I can't quite put my finger on, you said this earlier, it's a little embarrassing. I can't quite put my finger on why I don't like this game more than I do because it seems, well, it seems very smooth. It feels somewhat pleasant, which is a word I uh, used to describe other games I liked earlier. But somehow the entire experience is less than the sum of its parts. And there aren't even that many parts in this game. You know, it ends up being just very underwhelming for me. And so I don't really turn down a play, but if it's like there's Splendor at one table and something else at the other table, I almost always go to the something else. But occasionally I get stuck at the Splendor table and then sure, it's fine, it's okay, whatever. And people who are, this is going to sound highfalutin, but sometimes people who are brand new to the hobby, I, I notice them like it more than anyone else does too. I mean, they really think, oh wow, this is really cool. And that's maybe what my reaction was to Medici 20 years ago. But in this case, I just think it a little drab. Despite the very colorful look of the whole thing, the gameplay is a little bit drab. I think the winner of the game is the person who gets those combination bonus personality cards. I keep calling them personality cards because they have a person on them. And I kept trying to find some thematic thing. It's like, oh, that one's Shakespeare and that one's Machiavelli. But uh, no, I think they're just it's just artwork and it doesn't really matter what any of those things really are. I don't know what's wrong with me that I can't enjoy Splendor any more than I do other than I have one theory, which is, you know, I've made this comparison to Medici a couple of times. There was once upon a time when our hobby seemed to be overflowing with games that had auctions. And certainly it is good that we got past that stage and could do different sort of things. But one thing that's really good about auctions and that's different in Splendor, I've, I think I've heard someone describe Splendor as an auction game. It's not. If anything, it's a card drafting game that there's all these things to buy and we all have a chance to buy them but in turn order we can't always afford the cards we want so it's not exactly a pure draft but if I want this card and it's my turn and I can afford it I can just buy it auctions are different auctions are inherently more interactive you know if it's my turn and I bid for this you can outbid me 
And that might not seem like a lot of interaction, but I think it is significant that it has more going on between the players than I feel like is going on in Splendor. And so that's why it always leaves me a little bit or a lot underwhelmed. Ronan, what do you think of Splendor? I think that lack of interaction is perhaps part of the appeal to newer gamers. I remember when a friend of mine got myself back into hobby gaming around 2008. I would say to him, oh, can we play a game with less interaction? Because I just need to work out what I'm doing myself. And in Splendor, you've got that engine building thing whereby you're trying to get a certain number of reds in, in the bank so that you can spend them every turn and you're going after, hopefully, certain higher value cards. And when people get alone to do that, it's quite satisfying to start with. To a whale, some people want to move on and have more and more interaction. And other people are like, no, I'm quite doing my own little thing here. And this might be why it's not quite hit for me is, I said right back at the beginning, if it's too solitaire, and this is a little bit solitaire, you, you can grab those cards, block people out, but really that's all and there's a limited pool of gems as well so when you're drafting in gems you can say oh i see you need a blue i'll take the two blues remaining ha 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 that's possible but it's very gentle i'd say the first couple of games of it i was pleasantly surprised and another few games down the line i was like "Mm, it's all gentle it's all quite similar so this is one of those ones where it was half a dozen plays and i traded it away happy to have played it I would not turn down a game of it, but that's where it lies. I'm pretty much in agreement with you on Splendor. Yeah, it's just a little boring to me, is I think how I feel about it. Yeah, and the whole gem merchant theme is just, it's almost offensive. It's so bland. (laughs) Yeah, offensively bland. That's right. (laughs) (sighs) If only they could have put the name of a European city on there, it could have been more offensive. Oh, why isn't that really Machiavelli? It certainly looks like him. (laughs) I'm sure they meant them to look like people for a reason, but okay. Yeah. I know we're going to round our mark. You seem like such a nice man. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. You're so wrong about this one. Stop the podcast. (laughs) Stop the podcast. I want to get off. (laughs) It's Deep Sea Adventure. No. I'm going to explain the rules and be quiet. I told how wrong I am. It's All 2014 right. from Jun Sasaki. It's from Oink Games. Now, they do make some games, mm, but not this one. We are all, as players, treasure hunters in a rented ramshackle submarine. And we're going out to some ruins. And we're going to dive from the submarine into the ruins and attempt to collect treasures. The problem we have is that there's only a limited supply of air on the submarine and we all have to share it. So we're trying to get our treasures and get back to the submarine before the air runs out. Otherwise, we're going to score nothing for the round. It's played over three rounds. And each round, you decide whether you're going to continue deeper down a line of tiles into the sea and the tiles represent the treasures we're trying to collect. Or we're going to turn back and back towards the submarine and try and make it back in time before the air runs out. Now, after you've made the decision what direction you're going in, you're going to spend air, and it's one plus the number of treasures you are currently carrying on your little lever. So as people collect more treasures, that air is going to run out quicker. Also, there's a set amount of air no matter the number of players, so that will affect how far you're able to dive down as well. Then you roll dice, and they've got just numbers one to three on them, but two of each, they're a D6. And you move that far in a direction, skipping over spaces where there is another player. When you're on the treasure, you may take it if you choose to, or you can drop a treasure if you choose to as well. 
If you take a treasure, like I said, it's going to affect the amount of air you have. It's also going to affect how far you move because when you roll those dice, you take one off your movement for every treasure type of carrying. So you become both slower and you use up more air the more laden down you are. If you take a treasure, an X token gets put where that was. Now, the treasure in four different levels and their value increases as you go through the levels from a minimum of zero to a maximum of 12 to 15 in level four. So if you can get down there, that's where the high rewards are. But obviously, you're pushing your luckers. Do you have enough air in order to get back to the submarine? Otherwise, you score nothing. If you get back at the end of the round, you bank your treasures without looking at them to see exactly what their values there are. If you don't get back, then your treasures get dropped to the bottom of the sea and the collecting pile of three there as enticing players to push and get all the way to the bottom and pick lots of treasures up. So, Deep Sea Adventure. I, I've given this game a couple of tries. More than a couple. And I don't think I've got 30 seconds oh. pleasure out of it at all it's just it just makes no sense it's just all luck i may as well play snakes and ladders oh you now that's just that's just wrong (laughs) i can't believe you just said that (laughs) is this my turn to talk about deep sea adventure now oh go on you could dive i don't want to hold you back anymore i can hear you raring to go okay it's funny not only do i disagree this is one of my all-time favorites of the past year or two that's come out. It's been such a hit. Now, you know, these Japanese games and Japanese designers, we're starting to hear more and more about. And um, they're certainly not all good. We're, we're getting more exposure to more of them. And we're finding out certain things. So early on, uh, I had, uh, I can't even remember who, one of my friends had said like, oh, you know, one of my buddies has got a connection and he's like got all of these nine Japanese games and the two, he said, that were really good, that we had a lot of fun with, were, um, is it Dungeon of Mandom? It's the one that became, in, became Welcome to the Dungeon. That's the one that's more available. And that, Yeah, Dungeon of Mandom. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it, that's a good one, too. Let's not, get, let's not argue about that one. But that was a good one, too. And he said, uh, it's okay. <laughs> so he said, that one and Deep Sea Adventure. So, um, and then somewhere along the line, I heard about the blah, 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 Artist Goes to New York. And I've played all of those and a couple others. And I really agree with whoever made that first assessment that those were the keepers. And so when Deep Sea Adventure was available for purchase through the BGG store, and it's kind of expensive for what a little thing it is, you know, I thought, well, I don't know, it's got a good reputation. So I got it. And it was a, it has been, always has been a huge hit for us. It's just been so fun. And the fun part is, I mean, you mentioned we a lot. We have the theme and the subject is just crazy. You know, we're scuba diving from a submarine. Is that a thing? People scuba dive from submarines as opposed to boats. And uh, I know shared. John oxygen. Wayne used to in the movies, okay. right? When he fought a giant squid. Yeah, or Kirk Douglas. I think it's Kirk Douglas. Yeah. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I know shared oxygen hoses are not a thing. And that doesn't make any sense. You know, so some of that stuff is just silly. And, and the idea of. We always say you put your treasure back in the ocean when you drop it off. Um, this linear path is just kind of funny. But the theme makes just enough sense that the some of the rules make sense. So that's a, a good sign. And then the gameplay is just fun. It's got that co-opetition thing, you know, where you are working together, but only to a point. And in fact, it's not exactly like backstabbing. It's more like groupthink is that, you know, almost always when I play, someone says like, let's go down, let's go down deep and score all those points, you know, and dive down deep. And if no one bothers to pick up a treasure, you don't even use any air and everyone can swim down to those high value treasures. But at some point, someone thinks, hey, wait a minute, if 
if I grab a treasure now and swim back up, I might be the only one that makes it up. And I might be able to even grab a few low-value treasures that help me suck down more air and try to screw over the other players. And isn't that fun? <laughs> well, that's exactly how it plays. when I and, I and I love the seesaw that happens where on a first round, almost always new players dive too deep and then die. And then they watch someone who, and maybe me, who got one of the little treasures and scored one point, or maybe even zero points, or maybe four, who knows, whatever, but a, a modest number of points, but I lived. And they think, oh, that's what you're supposed to do. So then the next round, because you play in three rounds, they try to learn that lesson a little bit, but they're still frustrated because they think, I want to go down to where the good deep points are. And anyway, so there's this group think that sort of seesaws. And if they carry that too far into the third round, well, by now we've collected a lot of the treasures and the deep rounds aren't really so deep anymore. We can get to them much easier because the board shrinks as you play. And then, you know, they might go back too early, but now I can go down to the deep stuff and get a lot of points. So I make it sound like what I like to do is beat up on new players. That's not what I'm trying to say. What I'm trying to say <laughs> is that it's it's a fun experience to watch the group think and the aha moment come to life. And then I, I absolutely love, I, I just played this with some family members uh, a couple weeks ago. And someone says like, come on, dad, you know, we're going to, we're going to swim deeper this time. We're going to swim, 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 swim. And then the kid backs out and says like, I'm getting out of here. And they start swimming back up and dad says like, Hey, I thought we were going to dive deep, you know, and ha 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 ha. So there's just that fun sort of, just like I said, coopetition. You work together, but only to a point. And I don't think we have any other coopetition games on the list. It's kind of a, a rare subtype. And I think here it just works really well. Let me tell you what happens. When I'm playing that game and someone decides to head back before everyone else, everyone else heads down and grabs as many treasures as they can and everyone dies without Even fail. Even the first guy? <laughs> Even in the first one. Say you get to that pivot point where everyone decides, right, it's time to go back. And you roll your dice and you end up on an X. And you can't take a treasure and head back. So you're behind the curve. You're not going to yeah. get the best out of this round. You'll have to either go deeper to get a decent treasure and then you're never getting back or you head back and you can only pick up cruddy treasure. So, you know, you're on the borderline of two, level two or three or what have you. Without right. fail, what someone does is tank the game. <laughs> they just go, no, screw it. I'm heading well, to four and I'm taking every treasure I can because if I'm not getting back, you're not getting back. I would say they're playing correctly with their strategy because they've already <laughs> lost the round. That's and so right. they're, 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 the best they can do is try to make sure that other people also lose the round. But if everyone's losing the round, then someone's not someone is not being opportunistic enough to just scoop up one of the littlest treasures. But then as soon as someone does that, if too many people do that, then someone else says, well, you know what? You guys went back pretty early with some light stuff and now if I'm the only one swimming in the ocean, no one else is using air but me and I can actually get more points. So you gotta let that group think thing sort of sway back and forth but, but just like the ocean currents undulating <laughs> back and forth are you trying to bring theme into this john wayne <laughs> <laughs> the, the problem i have with it is it's supposed to be a pushy luck game and that's where the fun's supposed to be but it's not up to me when i push my luck if i roll poorly oh, yeah, i think you're right if i roll poorly I, right, i'm Ronan, screwed you've identified how wonderful it is well yes one thing that definitely people don't understand and i try to point this out right away is that these are not normal dice. They look like normal dice. They're not. They're one, two, three, one, two, three. And yeah. I even go as far as to, you know, I know what that little bell curve is. I tell them that means most of the time you're going to roll four, but sometimes a two or a three, once in a while, a five or a six, but most of the time you're rolling four. So if you pick up two treasures and you roll a four, 
With a minus two movement, you're only moving two. And you also need the important hopscotch part of movement to actually survive and swim back up to the sub. So I try to point that out because otherwise, I tell you, picking up a third treasure is almost suicide. So you're playing a game in which probably someone else is going to decide how far you can go down. You can only pick up one or two treasures. You might land on a cross, which means you can't pick up anything good. The person who went deepest is probably the person who happened to hop over other people to get down there. So it's determined by turn order. You're not, you're not sending me, Mark. You're not bringing me back from the brink on Deep Sea Adventure. I don't know. I've, I've explained it as best I can. It's a wonderful game. I don't know what's, what's the matter with you and your groups. It's a great, great game. <laughs> if we're going to move on, and this will be, I'm sure, taken back up on Twitter again. I'm I'm sorry you're so wrong. Okay, next. <laughs> next, uh, near miss for me. This is the Grizzled from 2015, designed by Fabian Riffaut and Juan Rodriguez. For this particular one, I think we want to call it the artist as well. Our artist is uh, Tignus. I don't know how to say it in French. And this is unfortunately someone from the Charlie Hebdo magazine and that attacks. Actually, you recognize the art style. It's a very distinctive art style. Published by... Cool mini or not, believe it or not, and uh, this is a co-op game. An ex- you know, unlike competition, like last one, this is expressly a co-op game. It's themed around World War One. That sounds like an odd theme for something that has some kind of comical artwork and this cooperation theme, but it actually has a real purpose to this entire design. In this game, you're all soldiers. Let's say in a squad. It's definitely in a trench and trench warfare. All the terrible things you've heard about, this is not going to sound like it's any fun, but it's so fascinating to me. All the terrible things you've heard about trench warfare in World War I are depicted in some way in this game. You have soldiers, they have to go on missions. This is all done with cards. It's a very small and inexpensive game. And there are all sorts of hazards that are also depicted in cards, like artillery and uh, smoke and bad weather, like snow and other things like that. And all of those things, if they come up in combination as you flip through a stack of cards, can spell the end of your mission and can spell some permanent damage to the players in terms of traits they pick up, negative traits they pick up, like phobias and things like that. This doesn't sound very fun, does it? Well, it's not exactly intended to be fun, and that sounds funny for a game. What do you mean a game is not intended to be fun? And that's ultimately, I suppose, why this is a near miss for me, because I found it hard to find a bunch of players who actually want to play this, because it actually does a a reasonably good job, despite its abstract mechanics, of giving a feel of despair, of still trying to pull together. That's an important thing, too. There is a mechanism that has to do with camaraderie or, or pulling together to try to get each other through this situation. It ended up being a near miss for me because, just like I said, it's just in doing exactly what it set out to do, which is give a game experience, meaning an interactive type experience, not just reading a book or watching a movie or reading a comic book, even this looks like kind of a comic book for adults. It gives the experience through gameplay of these horrible situations of being in trenches and having to go over the top and and going on a, a mission and trying to survive the experience together cooperatively watching your other players get weaker and, and more prone to failure that might bring the entire squad down, but also banding together through this sort of camaraderie mechanism to 
pull each other through a really tough patch. So as I described that, that either sounds fascinating to you, like it sounds fascinating to me and is fascinating to me, but even I have to admit that I got it and we played it a few times and then I felt like I was really happy to have played it a few times, but I've kind of gotten the experience. I've been exposed to the design and what it did, and that's fascinating. I see there's an expansion or something like that coming out in the future, and maybe I'll be interested in it then again and would definitely like to play it again. But I can't honestly say it's a favorite. It's just a fascinating game. And in that sort of category of more fascinating than fun, that's how I've ended up calling it a near miss. Yeah, we taught in the game how much that i tend to care about how a game goes and i've almost avoided the grizzled because i feel like i wouldn't have fun with it because i'd care because of the theme do i want to sit around after a day at work really rooting to get through these difficult situations and get into the story of the game and wanting us all to get through it with that in any decent car the fair chance of failure and is that something i want to set myself up for i love the theme i love that it's not more trading or more elves or whatever it might be and yet it's almost holding me back from it a little bit i'm a little bit worried about how intense the experience would be well, it, it, in actual gameplay, it's not super intense because the gameplay, actually the things you do in the game are pretty straightforward card mechanics type things. And the cartoony art style helps lighten it. Oh my gosh, if it was a graphic realistic art style, it would really be oppressive, but it's, it's not that way. There's some really good designer notes. Whether you play the game or not, you should look at the rules and read the designer notes about it. Because I think the designers thought to set out, you know, like if, if you're going to read a book or see a movie, or watch a television show. There's lots of times you might do that and just have the pure escapism and pure fun of whatever type of story or whatever you're seeing in any of those sort of formats. But there's other times, we're very familiar with it in other art forms, where I want to see a challenging film about an important subject. And it's not like it's fun. It's not fun to see Schindler's List. It's compelling and it's interesting. And you haven't seen too much of that with games. You, you Maybe you've seen a little bit of that with role-playing games you've probably seen it with war games and miniatures perhaps but you know the kind of euro games we have they don't tackle subjects like that and this is a rare example i'm not exactly sure it's a successful example but it's hard to say because it's kind of almost one of either either it's one of kind or it's first of a kind i'm trying to say you know let's tackle a serious subject even though we're talking about board game night and let's see what people make of it i'm not entirely sure we were all ready for this game and even though i have this sort of uh, half and half opinion about it, I kind of still hope there are more games like this in the future. Mm, I, I think the Charlie Hebdo link probably adds to it a bit as well. That There's that thought of that, yeah, it, it's a link to a real-life circumstance where where tragedy happened, and it's directly to the game, and then the game is reproducing this, this tragic uh, four years. Of yeah. So it, it's, it's an interesting... I think I'd need to be in the right frame of mind I'm not stealing myself exactly, but I, I just don't think I was ready to play it when it was offered up. And I, I am very interested in, in playing it, and I'd love to give it a go. Yeah, it might be the sort of game like, you know, you're going to play it some Saturday at like 10 o'clock in the morning. And then just sort of get it out, get it out of the way, and then you can play your fun light stuff the rest of the time. <laughs> you know, that sounds sort of silly, but I but I understand that. It's, it's not definitely at the end of a long you know, a hard work day or something, it's not, shoot, maybe that's when you want to play Strike for crying out loud or something. <laughs> if, you want to play something 
<laughs> if I ever I have know. that bad a day at work, I'll quit, okay? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. I need to sort of just put my brain in a jar and just play something for a little bit. <laughs> okay. We're going to move on to my near miss. And this is either Royal Goods or if you're a bad person, it's Oh My Goods. I don't know. That name change. I don't know. It's 2015 from Alexander Pfister, Lookout Spiel. Everyone's starting with their own charcoal factory. And they have one worker and they have eight goods on the charcoal factory, which are cards which are face down. It's a card game and they represent eight bits of charcoal. You also have five cards in your hand. Now, cards can represent various different things in the game. They are either money as goods when they're face down on a factory. It means they've been produced there and they are worth the amount of whatever that factory produces. When you start with charcoal, all those cards are worth one gold. They are a raw material with which you can fuel your factories. They are also a building which you can possibly build, which will in some way help you out with your little industry that you're trying to create as you go along. So you have five of those cards in your hand. Plays very quickly. Each morning, someone's going to draw cards from the top of the stack until two sunshines are revealed, and those sunshines are littered amongst the cards almost at random. And that will show you around half of the available goods which will be available for you to run your buildings this turn. And all you're worried about at that stage is what goods are they? Are they wool? Are they wood? Are they clay? The standard sort of Euro raw materials. When you've seen half the market, you then have a decision to make. You take your worker and you can use it to power one of your buildings. And you either put it as a happy, efficient worker, in which case it's going to produce two goods if that factory happens to run... Or it's going to be a grumpy worker, which is going to produce one good if that factory happens to run. However, to produce a good, each factory needs a number of raw goods. So for the charcoal, I might need two wood and a wool, for example. That market gives me access to that two wood and the wool that I need, or does it? And that's the decision I'm trying to make, because my efficient worker needs the factory to run with everything is required. My grumpy worker, the other side, can run with one resource short. So if I've got the two wood and not the wall, it will run, but it'll only produce one bit of charcoal for me. I can top that up in some way with cards from my hand, but we'll kind of get to that in a minute, because you can create sort of an efficiency engine. The other decision you have to make is, from the cards in your hand, is there anything you wish to try and build? Now, to build them, they're going to cost money, and that money are the goods face down. So you start with the, the eight one-value goods on your charcoal. If you're able to build other buildings, you might create cows, for example. And when you produce cows, they're worth three each. And then it's possible to take those cows and put them through a tannery if you build it. And then every card you get face down in the tannery is worth six gold each. And you can build yourself up from there. But what you're doing right now is you're deciding this is the building I want to build and I know how much money it's going to cost. Then the second half of the market gets revealed exactly the same way. You lay them out until there are two suns. Then it looks to see whether they can run the factory where they've placed their worker. They can use any of the cards that reveal from the market. They don't spend in any way. They're just available for everyone to use. And they can top up from their hand. If they do so, they produce their goods. That's it. That's how a round goes. You have a chance to get more workers. If you collect, for example, four green in your tableau, you're able to purchase another worker for a few gold. That will score you some points at the end of the game. And now you to run another factory, but just for one good at a time. And you have to have access to all the goods and what have you. You're playing with this until the market deck runs out, or more likely someone has eight buildings in their tableau. So it is a Euro game, very much condensed down. It's an engine building game, very much condensed down, where you can turn goods into another good, into another good, all the while trying to get money. You score points at the end for the buildings you've built and the workers you've been able to recruit. Now, 
is a nice, quick-playing, little Euro card game. There's a bit of luck in there. There's a little bit of push your luck. If the goods that my particular factories need never come out this turn in the market, someone else might get ahead of me, and then therefore they're a little bit more of a roll. Hopefully that will even up, and the goods they need won't come out in a couple of turns' time, and I'll be able to catch up, but possibly not. But quick enough for that luck not to be such an issue. The reason this is a near miss for me and not a hit is that the scoring is absolutely rubbish. And it's the only problem with the game, but it's a pretty major problem with the game. Because a factory that costs three gold might score you two points. A factory that costs 16 gold might score you three points. And a worker that costs two gold might score you three points. And there's no consistency whatsoever. And while you have that ability to create a chain of factories to turn charcoal into cows somehow, turn cows into leather, end up with high value, there's no reward for doing so. So what's most satisfactory in the play of the game is in no way linked to winning the game because you win by spamming cheap buildings and never even running them, just having them there because they'll score more points than someone who's got three or four high value ones. And it really lets down my goods because it took a little while to learn and get going. But once I did get going, it finished too quickly and I was, oh, and it just died. It just got 95% of the way and the crucial last 5% killed it. Mark, any thoughts on Oh My Goods? Well, I haven't played it, but I've picked up the game and looked at it a couple times and ended up putting it back on the shelf. And I think it's because I kind of got a vibe from it a little bit like uh, what I got from your description. I didn't even know about that sort of issue or problem in the scoring slash what should be your thematic objective in the game. But I, but I just sort of, you know, saw the charcoal and the resource <laughs> conversion and the yeah. tannery. And my, you know, I'm a, I'm a guy, I still like trading in the Mediterranean games. I still like Settlers of Catan. And, but I read that description and my eyes sort of glazed over. And I liked the idea of a card-based Euro engine game, but I think maybe more as a concept than an actual thing, because I don't really like those Euro engine games. I've never really liked how, unfortunately, that style of game has taken over the term Euro. That's why I keep once in a while refer to things like German games like they used to be. I sound like a crusty old timer here. But um, that kind of gameplay is a little underwhelming to me. I, I understand that some gamers really like that. Lots of knobs to turn. You're busy doing things. You know, Agricola and the other sort of games that came after that did that, and some Stefan Feld games do that. So there's lots of active things for you to do. It's sort of like micromanagement. I mean, I don't know if Oh My Goods has that, but that style of gameplay, it certainly looks like it does, and it's just maybe not. Well, it, it, it coming from Lookout Spiel kind of almost damages a little because it has exactly the same artwork as Agricola and, and all the other games, the heavier games from that <laughs> that publisher, which may create an expectation there's more there but whether you're expecting more or not the gameplay is very light just have to fix the scoring and you know it might be as simple as pasting on some higher vp values onto the higher value cards and suddenly the game works better at game in terms of the theme and that type of game i completely understand where you're coming from is however right where i do enjoy games i i am quite a stefan Feld fan i do like uve rosenberg's heavier games as well as his lighter games which you know, patchwork's great they bring out a two four player what looks like a similar version of patchwork by the way at essen which i'm very excited about it's themed around gardens but that um, yeah. oh that's that's good 
Yeah, sounds great. I've only seen a photo of it and I thought, oh gosh. Getting back to that style of game, I am a fan of, but it, it has to be satisfying in some way. And this just left me empty after promising so much it just pulled the rug out from under me so oh my goods i'm afraid is a miss a near miss but we're going to move on to two games which i'm sure are fantastic starting with yours mark yeah let's end on a good note here i've I've listed here new york 1901 which is published in 2015 it's uh for two to four players it's designed by uh chenier lasalle i think the name is and published by Blue Orange Games and some other publishers around the world as well. So New York 1901 is you know big square box sort of you know Cosmos box style Euro game of of the older type that I was referring to before. In fact, I have a feeling this game might feel a little too simple for some people, but not for me. I thought this might have gotten a Spiel des Jahres nomination actually, and I don't remember if it even got on the recommended list, but I would have certainly put it on there. Its theme is about building buildings in New York in 1901, but I have that inflection to my voice because it's really about property lots and just scoring points. It's not city building because that's a very attractive theme for a lot of people too. You know, we talk about Machi Koro. It's not city building here. It's just real estate investment, if you want to call it. It's building cities the same way a choir is building hotel chains, you know, where it's it's more of an abstraction. But you have a map of lower Manhattan, I guess it would be, with some, if I know my lower Manhattan, it's like got some historic streets and some sort of made up streets. The city is subdivided into blocks, which are properties that you can build things on. And then every player has a identical set of tiles, which are buildings of different sizes that will go on the board and uh, occupy these lots for points. And it's very straightforward, actually. In fact, what I really like when I play it is people start playing and they say like, oh, that's all there is to this. I do this move, you do basically the exact same move. We each score two points, three points, and we just kind of keep doing that back and forth. It seems silly. But, you know, sometimes I've related some games are like football games. I'm talking American football games here, where there are big plays for big points. And some games are like basketball games where there are lots of little plays for almost the same amount of points, but eventually one player is going to pull ahead and do better than the others through incrementally a little bit better plays. And 1901 is one of that latter type. It looks a little bit like Ticket to Ride in that there's a big stack of cards and a few of them get laid out and you get to pick those cards. Those are going to identify which city blocks you might build on. When you take a card, you don't put it in your hand or anything like that. You immediately take the action of claiming a lot. So if I pick a yellow lot, that means I get to put one of my workers, which it's not workers, it's in worker placement. It's just a marker, really. I put one of my worker markers down on a yellow lot, meaning later I'll get to build there. So you're either claiming lots or you're you're building. Now, when you build, uh, there's sort of Tetris-like. These tiles have different shapes, you know, and simple rectangles and L-shaped things and whatnot to fit in the different sort of city blocks. If you played Chinatown, you maybe sort of remember how the uh, city blocks get subdivided like that. This game has a similar kind of look to it. So I previously, you know, claimed some blocks so that I'm going to later on be able to build this building. And the building has a little four in it. That means when I play it, I get four points. Simple as that. I just score the four points. There's a scoring track. That's all there is to it. It never matters You only score points as you build the buildings. There's no future value. There's no bonus points. Well, actually, there are bonus points. i got to get to that in a second. But the scoring is very straightforward. A big part of the game is overbuilding, okay? You can't overbuild each other, sort of friendly, although you're going to be elbowing each other out for room because you can never lose 
a lot that you've previously drafted or picked before, but you can overbuild yourself. The buildings have either a bronze, silver, or gold little icon on them that indicates like the Bronze Age of building, the Silver Age, the Golden Age, something like that. So you can later on tear down a building that you've previously placed. You don't lose the points because like I said, you scored the points when you played it in the first place, but then play it with the next higher type of building. So you go from bronze to silver, silver to gold, or even from bronze all the way up to gold. And an important part of the game is being able to do that to yourself so that on most turns you're going to be able to build. You don't want to get to the point where you're stuck and it's like, oh, I'm not able to build this turn. That will probably happen to everyone at some point. But that's where I talked about how the little incremental changes between the players who win the game and the other players who are just playing the game are in who is able to see a few turns ahead, despite the randomness of the card flips, to leave themselves open for opportunities to continue to build. There are a few special buildings, which are just more points and they're bigger buildings. And kind of like Longest Road and Biggest Army and Sellers of Catan, you're not going to win the game if you're not able to build one of those special buildings. So you definitely got to position yourself to be able to, to do that. But it may be that everyone's able to do that. Now, I kind of mentioned bonus scoring briefly. This is one of those games where there's a random set of bonus scoring, a little bit like Kingdom Builder that we talked about at the opening of the show that has end game bonus scoring. It says like in this particular game, Oh, whoever has the most buildings along such and such street, you know, Wall Street or Broadway, is going to get a bonus, some number of points at the end of the game. And there will be one, a fourth bonus card that is more of a game effect. It's not just which blocks your arm, but it has other sort of special effects. I won't go into what those are. But this is one of those games where that's another thing that distinguishes the winners from the losers, which is who's able to look at those endgame bonuses and play their entire game such that when those are finally scored at the end of the game, they get, you'll never get all four of the bonuses because usually the way they get handed out is only one player gets them. And if there's a tie, no one gets them. But you want to get at least a couple of them. You know, like if there's a few of us playing, I want to get two of the bonuses and then two of the other players each get one. That way I got two bonuses and I'm probably going to help help myself win by doing that. So it's a deceptively light game. When you play it, I swear you're going to think like, oh, there's almost nothing here. And then by about the three quarters point, you'll say like, hey, how come that guy is always scoring like one point more for me per turn and he's now starting to open up a lead and I don't see how I'm going to be able to close it by the end of the game. And then you want to play it again and see how you can do that better. So it's a deceptively simple game. It plays very elegantly. I think it's an older style of game and I like that older style of game. And uh, that's New York 1901. Yeah, so I played this just the once and it was with a listener, Sean last summer when he was over with his wife in London. Now beforehand exactly what you were saying there in terms of the simplicity I'd heard a bit about it I probably watched a video or two and said hmm, yeah, is there much here but there was enough good buzz that when he said he had it with him I was really excited. I was like oh yeah well I'd love to try it and see what happened and what I found during the course of the game was although it is a game of incremental gains you have to set those games up early that's not to say you're set in stone but it takes a whole game for you to realize how it was you had to establish yourself, how to set yourself up to develop where you were from, to look at the bonuses of being along a certain street and what have you, and make sure that you were in running for those. Now, no one ran away with them at any stage, but I could definitely look back and go, oh man, you know, when I had a choice between that and that, I should have gone that way. And then later on, that would have had a more of an effect, a more positive effect for me. So when you said it was like a game of basketball or a ladder, I totally agree. 
but you are establishing that base early. Whether you can say you're tiring out the defense or you're drawing personal fouls, whatever <laughs> your analogy might be, it starts from the beginning. And I found it took that whole game for me to turn around and go, right, now I have the whole narrative of this game. Now I can kind of see to, to play again differently. And then I never got the second play in. So <laughs> it's definitely not a miss for me, but I can't tell you if it's going to be a definite hit or a near miss because I need to play that two, three, four more times to really get to grips with the whole game and, and get my teeth in and find out what's there for me. Yep, makes sense. It is the sort of game that, right, when you play it, and this sounds like a, a well, for some people, this is a drawback. Other people, I suppose it's an advantage that after you've played it once or almost fully once that you say like, aha, now I know what I should have been doing and all those all those turns that seem like they didn't even matter. But it's short. Like we've been saying all these games, they're short. It's listed at 30 to 60 minutes. I think 30 would be really racing along, but it's definitely under 60. You can play it again or you can play it next week and you can say like, oh, I, I get it now. I know what I'm going to do. And although we're making it sound very gentle, there is that competition for spaces and people will take a space that you wanted or a particular card to, to put their blocker in there and you go, oh. And again, once it goes on a bit, you can see what they're establishing and where they're trying to get to and they're trying to take control of a certain block to score points. And I like that, although it's kind of gentle competition, it's definitely there and you can have a little curse under your breath at people. Yeah. One of the little thing I think it's just, uh, I just tickled by this little design touch is that in the, cards that show the blocks on the city, almost all of them are two blocks big, kind of like a domino, a double-ended block. But there are some cards that have three, either three in a line or three in an L shape. And so you might say, well, wait a minute, some of them are three, but most of them are two. It sounds like the threes are definitely better. And when I've played it, well, I've often thought, yeah, that's right, the threes are better. It seems like the game ends up going to whoever draws the most threes, and that's just random how they pop up. But I've played it a few more times now, and I've seen, well, I've certainly seen myself make this mistake. I think I've seen other players make it too, is that those little subtle long-term strategies that you're trying to put together, you, you are tempted to deviate by the, from those when one of those triple cards flips up. You know, I think like, I'm setting myself up. I'm trying to get so I can build this big building. Or I'm trying to build more buildings along Broadway so I can get this end game bonus. And I'm working in this blue area of town, whatever. And all of a sudden, here comes this yellow triple flips up. And I think, like, one, it's a triple, so it's better. Two, it's not really my plan, but I'm sure it'll work out in the future somehow. Three, I don't want Ronan to get it. You know, I just, you know, and so pretty soon I decide to take the yellow triple, even though it's not part of my main strategy. And the last time I went out of my way to take every triple that came my way, I absolutely undercut myself. So it really made me think, oh, that's a very subtle little clever thing is that you think there's triples are inherently better but um no i think adhering to your long-term strategy is the most important thing to do yeah i think that stung me in my game as well i was dotted all over the place and i was like oh am i gonna pull this all together because space was so abundant at the beginning it wasn't a problem was it yeah yeah it changes doesn't it oh yeah okay we're gonna move on to the last game of this episode and this is meteor 2014 release designed by Mike Young published by Mayday Games this is a real time co-op that may send people running for the hills <laughs> we could have lost some listeners there you've got five rounds to save the earth there are meteors in the middle of the table the number of them is set by the number of players and the meteors are going to come in levels one to three or three to five or there's a couple of bigger ones which will tell you they're six or seven i'm going to explain the main way of playing the game there are different ways of varying the difficulty and we'll get to that at the end but you place these meteors face down and you just know they are strength one to three or three to five 
each player is going to have a hand of cards again, player count dependent. And on those cards, they're going to have rockets, which they can build using resources, which is another type of card they may have in their hand. Or there's also technologies, a few of them in the game, which you can build using the same sort of resources as a rocket. And they are going to make the game easier for you somehow. To start the game, you flip over a timer, you're on level five, and you can start to build. Now, everyone can build one thing. So if you're building a rocket, you place it down, it will say on the rocket, a couple of resources you need to build it. Now, anyone can add to that rocket. So if it needs two bits of chemicals, just between the table, you just need to put two chemicals down and that rocket is available to launch. Now, firstly, in the main game, you can't talk to each other. So or you just put the rocket down and you point to it and you try to get people's attention. You're, this needs chemicals. The rocket will then have a strength, which will launch towards and you choose any meteor. Let's say you choose a level 1 to 3 meteor and you have a level 2 rocket. You flip that meteor over and you see its value. Now, if it was a 3 strength meteor, that level 2 rocket would bounce off it and nothing happens. But everyone now knows at least that's a level 3 meteor. We know to send a level 3 rocket towards it. If it's a level 2 rocket, great. You've blown it up. It disappears. You're now closer to winning the game because you have to destroy all the meteors before all five rounds are over. If it's a level 1 meteor, your rocket is too strong. And you have killed it, but you've blown all the other meteors one step closer to the Earth. You jump on around, you turn the next egg timer over, and suddenly everything's got a bit more pressurized. So those cards being faced down are important because you kind of need to know what strength they are, otherwise you start taking risks. But that's part of the fun of the game. There are also different types of meteors. There's hidden meteors, which you can only kill last, but you don't know until you flip it over. There are meteors which are invulnerable unless you hit them with a certain type of rocket. So they might need some kind of nuclear fuel on your rocket to be able to blow that particular meteor up. Now, the rockets go up to level five. I said that there's meteors in there up to level six or seven. You can launch rockets simultaneously, but you have to somehow time that without talking to each other to take out those bigger level ones. So if someone's got a four and a three and we take it towards the seven, we have to do it at the same time. And then that will blow that up. At the end of each round, whether it's been caused by an overkill or the timer running out or all the players can decide to pass, everyone gets to draw one more card to refill their hand. You can do things, however, in order to reset your hands so you can do things called retrofits in which you either do it in resources or you do it in rockets and you need to get four of the same value or four completely different in one person's build area and then you throw them away and as a group you draw five cards in order to make the game slightly easier there's those technologies i discussed so although you can't talk to each other there's a communication satellite which if someone manages to build you'll be able to talk or there's a spy satellite which will flip all the meteors over or there's a card which allows you to all draw two cards at the end of each of the five rounds. You have to have destroyed all the meteors before the egg timer runs out for the end of round one, otherwise you've lost the game. If you destroy them, you've won the game. As simple as that. When you start playing this game, you're going to be awful at it because it's confusing. There's different types of iconography. You don't quite know how to communicate to each other, and it's all a huge mess. And that's where the draw was for me because there's a challenge there. And you go, right, let's do this again. Let's try and do it a bit better. And you go again, and maybe you'll get a bit closer to winning. And then you go again, and you'll go again. And you will gradually, as a team, get better at communicating, get better at timing when to launch, at kind of reading how each other play, of having some way of, of letting each other know, do this, do that. This is what I need. This is time to pass. This is time to hold back. So the problem with games like that, where the challenge is the main appeal, is that once you've beaten the game, then that's it. You've beaten the game. Well, there are boss meteor cards you can add. 
There are challenges you can add. There are player powers you can add in. They've put loads of variety within the box of the game. And the other way around, if I start playing it and it's not with gamers, you can play with all the meteors face up, or you can play that you talk to each other, or you can play with open cards and you can make it easier. And it's really flexible. Possibly the challenge is finding the right challenge level for the group you're playing with. But once you do, it becomes not quite like anything else. It's like a cross between escape and sort of Hanabi with the communication with not talking. I don't know. Anyway, Mark, have you heard anything about Meteor? I have heard about it, but I and I think I heard from some friend who actually liked it, but I haven't had a chance to play it. But I tell you, while you were describing it, I was trying to figure out how to go online and buy it right now. It sounds so cool. <laughs> I'm a good salesman. Yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. We talked a little bit offline about how when people hear that I'm in the space business, they always ask, oh, have you played the high frontier? And I think, no, and I don't really want to. I'm all, you know, <laughs> I think it's great for the people who like that sort of thing. But no, I don't want to do that. That's like, it's not even really like my job. People say, oh, it's too much like your job. No, 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 no. Just because it's space themed doesn't mean I like it. But this light, fun space thing, I mean, I think I could play this with the lunch group at work that might now, you know, be in a different country, speaking different languages that I'm going to be working with for a little while. Oh, it just sounds fantastic. I got to get it. I was dubious, right? Real-time co-op, you can't talk. It's got artwork that maybe doesn't really sell it. I think it makes it seem more kidsy than it is. It's really a challenge. It really is. If you get out on that basic setting with no bomb meteors or anything like that, even with a bunch of gamers, you're going to fail. Trust me on that. You And you'll fail a half a dozen times until you win the first time. You go, yeah, we've cracked it. And then you fail three more times. <laughs> Can't go longer than five minutes. So we always sit down and we say, oh, let's, let's just play Meteor for five minutes. Probably 45 minutes later, nine logged plays. <laughs> it might go back in the box. It's got that addictive, oh, we could have done better. We could have done better. And it challenges your communication and it makes you think slightly differently. It's just not quite like any other game I've played. So that's why it's a huge hit for me. Well, and it does, I, I said, like, I'm, you know, I'm in the process of buying it, like, right now because it sounds like something that's really in my wheelhouse. <laughs> I can definitely see that it's, you know, it looks to be, even though it's maybe thinky in terms of solving the puzzle, it's still with the artwork and maybe the theme, it's, it's light in other ways. And probably not for everybody that way, but it is absolutely for me. You've sold me, for sure. I'm getting this. All right. I'll let Mayday Games know. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Mark, thank you for all your thoughts. We're going to have a short musical interlude and then we'll say goodbye to everyone. Okay. Mark, thank you very, very much for joining me in the Game Pit today. Uh, thank you for having me. I enjoy your podcast quite a bit, and I enjoy your uh, tweets, whether they're correct opinions or not. <laughs> it's been a while for us trying to arrange this. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yes, we have both of us threatened to take control of social media at one time or another. <laughs> <laughs> the disagreements are internal and external. That's right. That's right. But it was very fun talking about all these games. It's a great group of games even the ones that you know we disagreed about or or the ones that i didn't love i I like this category of games so much and i like seeing all the things that designers are trying and i certainly love my favorites some of which we've discussed 
fantastic and i'm looking forward to hearing now that you're back podcasting again on your own channel about meteor once you get it yes hope so great cool thank you thank you everyone for joining us you can catch all our episodes on itunes stitcher and podbean if you want to contact us our email is thegamepitpodcast.gmail.com come along and join us twitter instagram facebook and our board game geek guild and we will catch you next time thank you mark and goodbye goodbye music by e Aaron.